The following is a conversation with Rodney Brooks, one of the greatest roboticists in history. He led the computer science and artificial intelligence laboratory at MIT, then co-founded iRobot, which is one of the most successful robotics companies ever. Then he co-founded Rethink Robotics that created some amazing collaborative robots like Baxter and Sawyer. Finally, he co-founded Robust.ai, whose mission is to teach robots common sense, which is a lot harder than it sounds. To support this podcast, please check out our sponsors in the description. As a side note, let me say that Rodney is someone I've looked up to for many years in my now over two decade journey in robotics because one, he's a legit great engineer of real world systems, and two, he's not afraid to state controversial opinions that challenge the way we see the AI world. But of course, while I agree with him on some of his critical views of AI, I don't agree with some others, and he's fully supportive of such disagreement. Nobody ever built anything great by being fully agreeable. There's always respect and love behind our interactions, and when a conversation is recorded, like it was for this podcast, I think a little bit of disagreement is fun. As usual, I'll do a few minutes of ads now, no ads in the middle. I try to make these interesting, so hopefully you don't skip, but if you do, please still check out the sponsor links in the description. It is the best way to support this podcast. I use their stuff and enjoy it. Maybe you will too. This show is brought to you by Paperspace Gradient. These guys are amazing. It's a platform that lets you build, train, and deploy machine learning models of any size and complexity. I love how powerful and intuitive it is. I'm likely going to use Paperspace for a couple of machine learning experiments I'm doing as part of an upcoming video. Fast.ai, a course I highly recommend uses it. That's a course by Jeremy Howard, who is as legit as it gets in the machine learning space. As an educator, as a programmer, I highly recommend his stuff. And plus, he's just a good and a brilliant human being. You can host notebooks on there. You can swap out the compute instance anytime. So you can start out on a small scale GPU or CPU instance and then swap out once your compute needs increase. To give Gradient a try, visit gradient.run slash lex and use the sign up link there. You'll get $15 in free credit, which you can use to power your next machine learning application. That's gradient.run slash lex. I hope you use it. I hope you enjoy it. And I hope to make a bunch of machine learning videos in the near future. This show is also brought to you by Give Directly, a nonprofit that lets you send money directly to people living in extreme poverty. Give Directly donors includes previous guests of this very podcast, like Jack Dorsey, Elon Musk, Vitalik Buterin, Will McCaskill, and Peter Singer. It may seem like uh, there's more optimal ways to do it, but that's not actually the case. Hundreds of independent studies have shown that direct giving can have positive impacts on health, nutrition, income, education, and more. And studies show giving cash unconditionally can more than double incomes, increase school enrollment and entrepreneurship, decrease skipped meals, illness, and depression, and cut domestic violence by one-third. It does not decrease hours worked or increase spending on temptations like tobacco and alcohol. There's a spillover effect to where every dollar given amounts to $2.60 in the local economy. In the last decade, GiveDirectly has delivered $400 million to over 900,000 recipients across nine countries. 
visit givedirectly.org slash lex and your first gift will be matched up to $300. That's givedirectly.org slash lex. The next sponsor is by Optimizers that have a new magnesium supplement. When I fast or am doing keto or carnivore, sodium, potassium, and magnesium are essential. Magnesium, I think, is the most tricky one to get right of those. That's why I use Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. Most supplements contain only one or two forms of magnesium, like glycinate or citrate, when in reality, there are at least seven that your body needs and benefits from. I recently did a Instagram Live with Andrew Huberman where we talked about magnesium, and then we talked about magnesium offline as well. He, he educated me about it uh, quite a bit. Again, it's, it's tricky to get right, and there's a lot of benefits if you get it right, and by optimizers, is just an easy way to get it right. It's kind of incredible when you get this part right, how easy it is to do the keto or the fasting. Anyway, go to magbreakthrough.com slash lex for a special discount. That's magbreakthrough.com slash lex. This show is also sponsored by Four Sigmatic the maker of delicious mushroom coffee and plant-based protein. Does the coffee taste like mushrooms, you ask? No, it does not. It's uh, delicious and also just the ritual of drinking hot coffee that has this aromatic flavor and obviously smell to it in the morning. That's just something that's like a catalyst for my mind to get extremely focused in the morning. It's the caffeine, the aroma, the hot coffee, the cup with the steam coming off of it, that's when I know I'm ready to get in the zone. And the first two, three hours, I try to make sure I allocate to deep work and deep thinking, really focusing on the difficult tasks where my mind is sharp and jumping from one element of a task to another and getting stuff done. Anyway, get up to 40% off and free shipping on mushroom coffee bundles if you go to foursigmatic.com slash lex. That's foursigmatic.com slash lex. This show is also brought to you by Simply Safe, a home security company designed to be simple and effective. It takes only 30 minutes to set up. You can customize the system for your needs on simplysafe.com slash lex. I have it set up in my place and love it. It's the whole thing the cameras, the monitoring, the response, from the setup to the day-to-day operation, it's super simple. Like I've said many times before, I just like it when people um, design solutions and implement them really well. And in the home security company space, Simply Safe is, uh, is the best. You can go on the internet and uh, ask around on Reddit and elsewhere, like what is the best home security company? And a lot of people say Simply Safe. Anyway, go to simplysafecom slash Lex to customize your system and get a free security camera plus a 60-day risk-free trial. Again, that's simplysafecom slash Lex. This is the Lex Friedman Podcast, and here is my conversation with Rodney Brooks. What is the most amazing or beautiful robot that you've ever had the chance to work with? I think it was Domo, um, which was made by one of my grad students, Aaron Edsinger. It now sits in uh, Daniela Russo's office, uh, director of CSAIL. 
and it was just a beautiful robot. And Aaron was really clever. He didn't give me a budget ahead of time. He didn't tell me what he was going to do. He just started spending money. <laughs> he spent <laughs> a lot of money. Yeah. He and Jeff Weber, who um, was a mechanical engineer, who Aaron insisted he bring with him when he became a grad student, mm -hmm. built this beautiful, gorgeous robot, Domo, which is a to upper torso humanoid, two two arms, uh, uh, with fingers, three-fingered three hands, mm -hmm. um, uh, and um, face, eyeballs, um, all uh, not the not the eyeballs, but everything else. Series elastic actuators, uh, you can interact with it. Um, cable driven, all the motors are inside, and it's just gorgeous the eyeballs are actuated too or no oh yeah the eyeballs are actuated with cameras and you know so it had a visual attention mechanism you know wow looking when people came in and looking in their face and talking with them yeah. why wow, was it amazing the beauty of it you said you said what was the most beautiful beauty what is the most beautiful it's just mechanically gorgeous as as everything aaron builds has always been mechanically gorgeous it's just exquisite in the detail are we talking about mechanically, like literally the amount of actuators? The, uh, the actuators, the cables, he um, anodizes different parts, different colors, and it just looks like a work of art. What about the face? Is that, Do you find the face beautiful in robots? Um, when you make a, a robot, it's making a promise for how well it will be able, able to interact. So I always encourage my students not to overpromise. You know, like I'm, even with its essence, like the the thing it presents, it should not overpromise. Yeah. So I, the the joke I make, which I think you'll get, is if your robot looks like Albert Einstein, it should be as smart as Albert Einstein. Yeah. So uh, the the only thing in in Domo's face is uh, the eyeballs, um, and because that's all it can do, it can look at you and pay attention, um, and so there is no. It's not like one of those. Um, Japanese robots that looks exactly like a person at all. But see, the thing is, us humans and dogs too, don't just use eyes for as attentional mechanisms. They also use it to communicate as part of the communication. Like a dog can look at you, look at another thing and look back at you. And that designates that we're going to be looking at that thing. Yeah, or, or intent, you know, intent. And on, on, on both Baxter and Sawyer at Rethink Robotics, they had a screen with, you know, graphic eyes so it wasn't actually where the cameras were pointing but it the the eyes would look in the direction it was about to move its arm so people in the factory nearby were not surprised by its motions because it gave that intent away before we talk about baxter which i think is a beautiful robot let's go back to the beginning when did you first fall in love with robotics we're talking about beauty and love to open the conversation this is great I've got these, I was born in uh, the end of 1954, and I grew up in Adelaide, South Australia. And I have these two books that are dated 1961. So I'm guessing my mother found them in a store in 62 or 63. How and Why Wonder Books. Um, how and Why Wonder Book of Electricity, and a How and Why Wonder Book of Giant Brains and Robots. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> um, I learned how to build circuits, you know, when I was eight or nine, simple circuits. And I, and I read, you know, learned the binary system and um, saw all these drawings mostly uh, of robots. And um, then I tried to build them for the rest of my childhood. Wait, 61, you said? This was when the, the two books, I've still got the, 
at home. What what does the robot mean in that context? No, they they were the, some of the robots uh, that they had were uh, arms, you know, big arms to move nuclear material around. But they had pictures of welding robots that looked like humans under the sea welding stuff underwater. Um, so they weren't real robots, uh, but they were you know what people were thinking about for robots. What were you thinking about? Were you thinking about humanoids? Were you thinking about arms with fingers? Were you thinking about faces or cars? No, actually, to be honest, I realized my limitation on building mechanical stuff. So I just built um, the brains, mostly, I, I, out of different technologies as I got older. Um, uh, I, I built a, uh, a learning system, which uh, was chemical-based, and I had this ice cube tray each well was a cell and by applying voltage to the two electrodes it would build up a copper bridge so over time it would it would learn a, a simple network um so i could teach it stuff and that was mostly things were driven by my budget and nails as electrodes and a and a and a ice cream, I mean, an ice cube tray was, was about my budget at that stage. Later, I managed to buy transistors, and then I could build gates and flip-flops and stuff. So so one, one of your first robots was an ice cube tray? Yeah. <laughs> and it was very cerebral, because it learned to add. <laughs> very nice. Uh, well, just a, a decade or so before, in, in uh, 1950, Alan Turing wrote the paper that formulated the Turing test. And he opened that paper with the question, can machines think? So let me ask you this question. Can machines think? Can your ice cube tray one day think? Um, certainly machines can think because I believe you're a machine and I'm a machine and I believe we both think. Um, I think Speak for yourself. I, I think any other philosophical position is sort of a, a little ludicrous. What does think mean if, if it's not something that we do? Um, and we are, and we are machines. Um, so yes, machines can, but do we have a clue how to build such machines? That's a very different question. Are we capable of building such machines? Uh, you know, are we smart enough? We think we're smart enough to do anything, but maybe we're not. Maybe you know, we're just not smart, smart enough to build stuff the, like us. The kind of computer that uh, Alan Turing was thinking about. Do you think there is something fundamentally? Uh, or significantly different between the computer between our ears, the, the biological computer that humans use, and uh, the computer that he was thinking about from a from a sort of high level philosophical. Yeah, I, I believe it uh, that it's very wrong. In fact, I'm halfway through a, I think it'll be about a 480 page book um, titled. The working title is "Not Even Wrong," <laughs> and if I may, I'll tell you a bit about yes, that book. Please. So there's two, two, th well, three thrusts to it. Um, one is the history of computation, what we call computation. Mm -hmm. It goes all the way back to uh, uh, some manuscripts in Latin from 1614 and 1620 by Napier and, and Kepler through Babbage and, and Lovelace. And then Turing's 1936 paper uh, is you know, where we, what we think of as the invention of, of, of modern computation. And that paper, by the way, did not set out to, you know, invent computation. It set out to uh, negatively answer one of uh, Hilbert's three later set of problems. He called it as um, uh, an effective way of 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 getting answers. And and Hilbert Hilbert really worked with rewriting rules. 
as did um, um, Church, who also, at the same time, a month earlier than Turing, disproved Hilbert's one of these three hypotheses. The other two had been, already been disproved by Gödel. So Turing set out to disprove it, because that's it's always easier to disprove these things than to prove that there is an answer. And um, so he needed, um, and it, it really came from his, his uh, professor while he was an undergrad at, at Cambridge, who'd said, who'd turned it into, is there a mechanical process? So he wanted to have a show a mechanical process that could calculate numbers, because that was a mechanical process that people used to generate tables. They were called computers, the people at the time. Mm -hmm. And they followed a set of rules where they had paper and they would write numbers down and based on the numbers, they'd keep writing other numbers. And they would produce um, numbers for these tables, engineering tables, that the more, the more iterations they did, the more significant digits came out. And so Turing, in that paper, set out to, sh to define what sort of machine could do that, mechanical machine, where it could produce an arbitrary number of digits in the same way a human computer did. Um, and he came up with a very simple set of constraints where there was an, an infinite supply of paper, this mm -hmm. the, the tape of the Turing machine, and each Turing machine had a Set of in, came with a set of instructions that, as a person could do with pencil and paper, write down things on the tape and erase them and put new things there. And he was able to show that that system was not able to do something that Hilbert had hypothesized. So he disproved it. But he had to show that this was this this system was good enough to do whatever could be done, but <laughs> couldn't do this other thing. Yeah. And there he said. And he says in the paper, I don't have any real arguments for this, but based on intuition. So that's how he defined computation. And then if you look over the next, uh, from 1936 up until really around 1975, you see people struggling with, is this really what computation is? Mm -hmm. And so Marvin Minsky, very well known in AI, but also a fantastic mathematician uh, in his book, Finite and Infinite Machines, from the mid '60s, which is a beautiful, beautiful mathematical book, um, says says at the start of the book, "Well, what is computation?" Turing says it's this, and yeah, I sort of think it's that. It doesn't really matter whether the stuff's made of wood or plastic. It's just you know that relatively cheap stuff can do this stuff, and so yeah, it seems like computation. And Donald Knuth, uh, in his first volume of his you know uh, Art of Computer Programming, mm -hmm. in around 1968 says, well, what's computation? Uh, it's this stuff, like Turing says, that a person could do each step without too much trouble. Uh, <laughs> and so one of his examples of what would be too much trouble was a, a step which required knowing um, whether Fermat's last theorem was true or not, because it was not known at the time. And that's too much trouble for a person to do as a step. And um, Hopcroft and Ullman sort of said a similar thing later that year. And by 1975, in the A.H.O. Hopcroft and Norman book, they're saying, well, you know, we don't really know what computation is, but intuition says this is sort of about right, and this is what it is. That's computation. It's a sort of agreed-upon thing, which happens to be really easy to implement in silicon. And then we had 
Moore's Law, which took off, and it's been an incredibly powerful tool. Mm -hmm. I certainly wouldn't argue with that. The version we have of computation, incredibly powerful. Can we just take a pause? So what we're talking about is there's an infinite tape with some simple rules of how to write and on that tape, and that's that's what we're kind of thinking about. This is computation. Yeah, and it's modeled after humans, how humans do stuff. And, and I think it's a... Turing says in the 36 paper, one of the critical facts here is that a human has a limited amount of memory. Mm -hmm. So that's what we're going to put onto our, com our mechanical computers. Mm -hmm. so, uh, uh, uh. <laughs> so, you know, unlike mass, <laughs> unlike mass or charge or, you yeah, know, it's not, a, it's, it's not given by the universe. It mm -hmm. was, this is what we're going to call computation. Yeah. And then it has this really, uh, you know, it had this really good implementation, which is completely changed our technological world. That's computation. Second part of the book, I or, or, or argument in the book, I have this two-by-two two matrix with um, science in the top row, engineering in the bottom row, left column is intelligence, right column is life. Mm -hmm. So in the bottom row, the engineering, there's artificial intelligence and there's artificial life. Mm -hmm. In the top row, there's neuroscience and abiogenesis. How does living matter turn in? How does non-living matter become living matter? Yes. Four disciplines. These four disciplines all um, came into the current form in the period 1945 to 1965. Um, <laughs> That's interesting. There was neuroscience before, but it, it wasn't effective yeah. neuroscience. It was, you know, there were these ganglia and there's electrical charges, but no one knew, knows what to do with it. And furthermore, there are, there are a lot of players who are common across them. I've, got, I've, I've identified common players except for artificial intelligence and abiogenesis. I don't have, but for any other pair, I right. can point to people who work in. And a whole bunch of them, by the way, were at the Research Lab for Electronics at MIT, mm -hmm. um, where uh, Warren McCulloch uh, mm -hmm. held, held, held forth. And in fact, McCulloch, Pitts, uh, Letvin, and Maturana wrote the first paper on functional neuroscience called What the Frog's Eye Tells the Frog's Brain, where instead of it just being this bunch of nerves, they sort of showed what different anatomical components were doing and telling other anatomical components and, you know, generating behavior in the and frog. Would you put them as basically the fathers or the one of the early pioneers of what are now called artificial neural networks? Yeah, I mean McCulloch and Pitts. Uh, uh, Pitts was a was a much younger than him. In 1943, mm -hmm. had written a paper inspired by Bertrand Russell on a calculus for the ideas imminent in neural systems, mm -hmm. where they had tried to, without any real proof, they had tried to give a formalism for neurons, basically in terms of logic. And gates, or gates, and not gates, with with no real evidence that that was what was going on. But they they talked about it, and that that was picked up by Minsky for his 1953 uh, dissertation on uh, which was a, was a neural network. We mm -hmm. call it today. It was picked up by um, uh, John von Neumann when he was designing the Edback computer in 1945. He talked about its components being neurons. Um, based on, and in references, he's only got three references, and one of them is the McCulloch-Pitts paper. 
So all these people, and then the AI people, and the artificial life people, which was John von Neumann originally. It's like overlap between all. They're all going around at the same time. And three of these four disciplines turned to computation as their primary metaphor. Mm. So I've got a couple of chapters in the book. One is titled, wait, computers are people? Because that's where our computers came from. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, from people who were computing Mm. stuff. And then I've got another chapter, wait, people are computers, which is about <laughs> computational neuroscience. Yes. So there's this whole circle here and that, that computation is it. And, you know, I have talked to, to people about, well, maybe it, it's not computation that goes on in the head. Of course it is. Yeah. Okay, well, when Elon Musk's rocket goes up, is it computing? Is that how it gets into orbit, by computing? But we've got this idea, if you want to build an AI system, you write a computer program. Yeah, in the same, so the word computation very quickly starts doing a lot of work that it was not initially intended to, to, to do. It's just like in the same, if you talk about the universe as essentially performing a computation. Yeah, right, Wolfram does this. He yeah. turns it into computation. You don't turn rockets into computation. Yeah. By the way, when you say computation in our conversation, do you tend to think of computation narrowly in the way Turing thought of computation? It's 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 gotten very okay. It you know <laughs> squishy. Yeah, squishy. Okay. Over time. Um, but computation in the way Turing thinks about it, and the way most people think about it, actually fits very well with um, thinking like a hunter gatherer. There are places, and there can be stuff in places, and the stuff in places can change, and it stays there until someone changes it. And it's this m- metaphor of place and container, mm-hmm. which you know is a combination of our um, place cells in our hippocampus and our cortex. But this is this is how we use metaphors for mostly to think about. And when we get outside of our metaphor mm-hmm. range, we have to invent tools which we can sort of switch on to use. So calculus is an example of a tool. Mm-hmm. It can do stuff that our raw reasoning can't do, and we've got conventions of when you can use it or not. But sometimes, um, you know, people try to, all the time, we always try to get physical metaphors for things, which is why quantum mechanics has been such a problem for 100 years, because it's a particle. No, it's a wave. It's got to be something we understand. Mm-hmm. And I say, no, it's some weird mathematical object that's different from those, but we want that metaphor. Well, you know, I, I suspect that that you know, a hundred years or two hundred years from now, neither quantum mechanics nor nor dark matter will be talked about in the same terms. You know, in the same way that um, phlogiston's theory eventually went away because um, uh, it, it just wasn't an adequate explanatory metaphor. You know, that metaphor was the stuff. There is stuff in the burning. The burning is in the matter. <laughs> but as it turns out, the burning was outside the matter. It was the oxygen. So our desire for metaphor and combined with our limited cognitive capabilities gets us into trouble. That's my argument in this book. Now, and people say, well, what is it then? And I say, well, I wish I knew that. I'd write yeah. a book about that. But I, you know, give some ideas. But so, so there's the three things. Computation is sort of a particular thing we use. Um, uh Oh, can I tell you one beautiful thing? One beautiful yes. thing I found. So, Please. you know, I used an example of a thing that's different from computation. You hit a drum, 
and it vibrates. And there are some some uh, stationary points on the drum surface, you know, because the waves are going up and down the stationary points. Um, now, uh, you could compute them to arbitrary precision, um, but the drum just knows them. The drum doesn't have to compute. What was the very first computer program ever written by Ada Lovelace? Mm-hmm. To compute Bernoulli numbers, and Bernoulli numbers are exactly what you need to find those stable points in the drum surface. Wow. <laughs> anyway, and there was a bug in her program. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the arguments to divide were reversed in one place. And it still worked. Well, no, she, she never got to run it. They never oh, built right. the analytical engine. She wrote yeah. the program without, without a, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, so computation? Computation is sort of, you know, a thing that's, become dominant as a metaphor, but yeah. eh, is it the right metaphor? Um, all f- three of these four fields adopted computation, and you know, the, it, a lot of it swirls around Warren McCulloch and his all his students, and he funded a lot of people. Um, and, uh, and, and our human metaphors, our limitations to human thinking yes. all play into this. The, the three themes of the book. So, so I have a, a little to say about computation. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so you're saying that there is a gap between the computer or the the um, the machine that performs computation and this machine that appears to have consciousness and intelligence. Yeah. That, Can we um, that piece of meat in your head? Piece of meat, and maybe it's not just the meat in your head; it's the rest of you too. I mean, you have. You have you actually have a neural system in your gut. Um, I I tend to also believe, not believe, but we're now dancing around things we don't know. But I tend to believe other humans are important. Like so, we're almost like I, I I just don't think we would ever have achieved the level of intelligence we have without other humans. Uh, I'm not saying so confidently, but I have an intuition that some of the intelligence is in the interaction. Yeah, and and I think uh, you know I think it it seems to me very likely. Again, we you know this is speculation, but we our species and probably um, probably Neanderthals to some extent because you can find uh, old bones where they seem to be counting on them by putting notches um, that were Neanderthals had done. We are able to put um, some of our stuff outside our body into the world, and then other people can share it. Mm-hmm. And then we get these tools that become shared tools, and so there's a whole coupling that would not occur in, you know, the single deep learning network, which was fed, you know, all of literature or something. <laughs> yeah, the 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 neural network can't um, step outside of itself. But is there is there some? Um, can we explore this dark room uh, a little bit and try to get at something? What what is the magic? Where does the magic come from in the human brain that creates the mind? What, what's your sense as scientists that try to uh, understand it and try to build it? What are the directions that, um, if followed might be productive? Is it creative interactive robots? Is it creating large deep neural networks that uh, do like self supervised learning and just like will 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 discover that when you make something large enough, some interesting things will emerge. Is it through physics and chemistry and biology, like artificial life angle, like will sneak up in this uh, four quadrant 
matrix that you mentioned is there anything you, yeah. you're most if you had to bet all your money <laughs> financial <advice>. i wouldn't <laughs> okay so every intelligence we know and includes you know animal intelligence dog intelligence you know uh, uh, octopus intelligence which is a very different sort of architecture from from us um all the intelligences we know um perceive the world in some way um, and then have action in the world, but they're able to um, perceive objects in a way which is actually pretty damn pheno phenomenal <laughs> and surprising. You know, we tend to think, you know, that uh, that that uh, the, the box over here between us, which is a sound box, I think, is is a blue box, but uh, blueness. Um, is something that we construct with with um, um, uh, color constancy. It's not a. It's not a. It's not the blueness is not a direct function of the photons we're receiving. It's actually context. You know, which is why um, you can turn. Uh, you know, you, you've maybe seen the examples where um, someone turns a stop sign into a. Um, some other sort of sign by just putting a couple of marks on them, and the mm -hmm. deep learning system gets it wrong, and everyone says, "But the stop sign's red." It, you know, why is yeah. it? Why is it think it's the other sort of sign? Because redness is not intrinsic in just the photons; it's actually a construction of an understanding of the whole world and the relationship between objects to get con color constancy. Um, but our uh, tendency, in order that we get an archive paper really quickly, is you just show a lot of data and gi give yeah. the labels and hope it figures it out. But it's not figuring it out in the same way we do. We have a very complex perceptual understanding of the world. Dogs have a very different perceptual understanding based on smell. They go smell smell a post. They can tell um, how many you know different dogs have visited it in the last 10 hours and how long ago there's all sorts of stuff that we just don't perceive about the world and just taking a single snapshot is not perceiving about the world it's not perceiving the the registration between us and the object and registration is a a philosophical concept brian cantwell smith talks about it a lot very difficult squirmy thing to understand but i think none of our systems do that we've always talked in ai about the symbol grounding problem how our symbols that we talk about are grounded in the world mm -hmm. and when deep learning came along and started labeling images people said ah the grounding problem has been solved no the labeling problem was solved with some percentage accuracy which is different from the grounding problem so you uh there's uh you agree with hans marvek and uh the, what's called the marvek's paradox that uh, highlights this counterintuitive notion that reasoning is easy but perception is, and mobility are hard yeah we shared an office when um we were, when i was working on computer vision and he was working on his his first mobile robot what were those conversations like they were great <laughs> <laughs> so do you still kind of Maybe you can elaborate. Do you still believe this kind of notion that perception is really uh, hard? And like, can you make sense of why we humans have this poor intuition about what's hard and not? Well, well, well. Let me let me give a sort of a, a an, another another story. Sure. If you go back to you know the original um, you know teams working on AI. Um, from the late 50s into the 60s, you know, and you go to the AI lab at MIT. Um, who was it that was doing that? 
was a bunch of really smart kids who got into MIT, mm -hmm. and they were intelligent. So what's intelligence about? Well, the stuff they were good at, playing chess, doing integrals. That was, that was hard stuff. Yeah. But, you know, a baby could see stuff. That wasn't, that wasn't intelligent. That was, any, anyone could do that. That's not intelligence. Yes. And so, it, you know, this, there was this intuition that the hard stuff is the things they were good at, and the easy stuff was the stuff that everyone could do. Yeah. And maybe I'm overplaying it a little bit, but I think there's an element of that. Yeah, I mean, there, I don't know how much truth there is to, uh, like, chess, for example, has, was for the longest time seen as the highest uh, level of intellect, right? Until we got computers that were better at it than people, and then we realized, you know, if you go back to the 90s, you'll see, you know, the stories in the press around when, when um, Kasparov was beaten yeah. by Deep Blue. Oh, this is the end of all sorts of things. Computers are going to be able to do anything from now on. And we saw exactly the same stories with Alpha Zero, the, the Go playing program. Yeah. yeah. But still, to me, reasoning is a special thing. And perhaps- No, we, we actually, we're, we're really bad at reasoning. We just <laughs> use these analogies based on our hunter-gatherer intuitions. But why is that not, don't you think the ability to construct metaphor is a really powerful thing? Oh yeah, it is. stories. It is. That's, yeah. It's the constructing the metaphor and registering that to yes, something constant in our brains. Like, yeah. isn't that what we're doing with, with vision too? And, we're, we're telling our stories. We're constructing good models of the world. We're yeah, yeah. But uh, but um, I think we we jumped between what we're capable of and how we're doing it right there. Yeah. There was a little confusion sure. that went on sure. um, uh, as, <laughs> as we were telling each other stories. Then. Yes, exactly. <laughs> trying to delude each other. No, I, I just think uh, I'm not exactly. So I'm trying to pull apart this Marvax paradox. I it's, don't view it as a paradox. <laughs> what did evolution what did evolution spend its time on yes it spent its time on getting us to perceive and move in the world that was you know 600 million years as multi-celled creatures doing that and then it was you know relatively recent that we that we you know were able to um hunt or or gather or you know even even animals hunting that's much more recent and then and then uh, anything that we you know speech uh language those things are you know, just a couple of hundred thousand years, yeah. probably, if, if 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 that long, and then agriculture, ten thousand years. You know, all that stuff was built on top of those earlier things, which took a long time to develop. So, if you then look at the engineering of these things, so building it into robots, what's the hardest part of robotics? Do you think, as uh, through the decades that you worked on robots? Uh, in the context of what we're talking about, vision, you know, perception, the actual sort of the the biomechanics of movement. Uh, I'm kind of drawing parallels here between humans and machines always. Like, uh, what do you think is the hardest part of robotics? I, I sort of think all of them. <laughs> <laughs> there are no easy parts to do well. Um, we we sort of go reductionist and we reduce it to oh, if only we had all the the location of all the points in 3D yeah. things would be great <laughs> you know if only we had labels on the on the images you know things would be great but you know as as we see that's not good enough uh, some deeper understanding but if you if i came to you and i could solve one category of problems in robotics uh instantly what would give you uh, the greatest pleasure. 
I mean, is it, uh, you know, you, you look at robots that manipulate objects. Uh, wh what's hard about that? You know, is it uh, the perception? Is it the, um, the reasoning about the world, like common sense reasoning? Is it the actual building a robot that's able to interact with the world? Is it like human aspects of a robot that's interacting with humans and that, that game theory of how they work well together? Well, let's talk about manipulation for a second, because I had this really blinding moment. Uh, uh, you know, I'm a grandfather, so grandfathers have blinding moments. Yes. Just a, a three or four miles from here, um, last year, my 16-month-old uh, grandson was in his new house for the first time, right? First time in this house. And he'd never uh, been able to get to a window before, but this had some low windows. Mm -hmm. And he goes up to this window with a handle on it that he's never seen before. And he's got one hand pushing the window and the other hand turning the handle to open the window. Mm -hmm. he, he, he knew he, two different hands, two different things he knew how to, how to put together. Yeah. And he's 16 months old. And there you are watching in awe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, how did in he, an how environment did he, environment he'd never seen before, a mechanism he'd never seen. How did seen. he do that? How yes, do that? that's a good question. How did he do that? That's why. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, okay, like you could see the, the, the leap of genius from using one hand to perform a task to combining to doing, I mean, first of all, in, in manipulation, that's really difficult. It's like two hands both necessary to complete the action. And, and completely different, and he'd never seen a window open yeah. before. <laughs> huh. <laughs> but he inferred somehow, handle, open, something. Yeah. Know, there may have been a lot of um, slightly different failure cases that you didn't see. Yeah. Not with a window, but with other objects of t turning and twisting and handles. Oh, well, the, the, you know, there's a, there's a great counter to... Um, you know, reinforce, reinforcement learning will just give, you know, the, the robot, um, you give the robot plenty of time to try everything. Yes. Actually, can I tell a little side story here? So I'm in um, DeepMind in London, uh, as this three, four years ago, where, um, you know, there's a big Google building and then you go inside and you go through this more security and then you get to DeepMind where the other Google employees can't go. Yeah. And I'm in a, I'm in a conference room, bare conference room with some of the people, and they tell me about their reinforcement learning experiment with uh, robots, um, um, which um, are just trying stuff out. And they're my robots. They're, they're Sawyers that we sold them. Um, uh, and they really like them because Sawyers are compliant and can sense forces, so they don't break when they're bashing into walls. They, mm -hmm. they stop and they do all this stuff. And, you know, so you just let the robot do stuff and eventually it figures stuff out. By the way, so we're talking about robot manipulation, so robot arms and so on. Yeah, so, so he's a robot yeah. arm. Just, you know, what's Sawyer? So he's a robot arm that my company, Rethink Robotics, yeah. built. Thank you for the context. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> okay, cool. So we're in deep mind. Uh, and, the, the, you know, it's in the next room. These robots are just bashing around to try and use reinforcement learning to learn how to act. And well, can I go see them? Oh, no, they're secret. They were my robots that yeah. were secret. <laughs> That's hilarious. Okay. <laughs> anyway, the point is, you know, this idea that you just let uh, reinforcement learning figure everything out is so counter to how a kid does stuff. So 
again, story about my grandson. I gave him this, this uh, uh, box that had lots of different lock mechanisms. He didn't randomly, you know, and he was 18 months old. He didn't randomly try to touch every surface or push everything. He found, he could see what, where the mechanism was. And he started exploring the mechanism for each of these different lock mechanisms. He, and there was reinforcement, no doubt, of some sort going on there. But he applied a pre-filter, which cut down the search space dramatically. I, I, I wonder to what level we're able to introspect what's going on. Because what's also possible is you have something like reinforcement learning going on in the mind in the space of imagination. So like you have a good model of the world you're predicting and you may be running those tens of thousands of like loops, but you're like, as a human, you're just looking at yourself, trying to tell a story of what happened. And it might seem simple, but maybe there's a lot of computation going on. Whatever it is, but there's also a mechanism that's being built up. It's yeah. not just random search. That yeah. mechanism prunes it dramatically. Yeah, the that that pruning uh that pruning step, but it doesn't it's possible that that's so you don't think that's akin to a neural network inside a reinforcement learning algorithm. Is it possible? It's uh, yeah, until <laughs> it's possible. I uh but but I you know um I I I I'll be incredibly surprised if that happens. I'll also be incredibly surprised that, you know, after all the decades that I've been doing this, where every every few years someone thinks, now we've got it, mm -hmm. now we've got it. I, you know, I, four or five years ago, I was saying, I don't think we've got it yet. And everyone was saying, oh, you don't understand how powerful AI is. I had people tell me, you don't understand how powerful it is. Um, I, you know, I, 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 I sort of had a, a, a track record of what the world had done to think, well, this is no different from before. Yeah. Oh, we had bigger computers. We had bigger computers in the 90s and we could do more shit stuff. Yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> but, okay, so let me let me, let me push back. Because I'm, I'm generally sort of optimistic and try to find the beauty in things. Um, I think there's a lot of uh, surprising and beautiful things that neural networks, this new generation of deep learning revolution has revealed. To me, it has continually been very surprising the kind of things it's able to do. Now, oh. generalizing that over saying like this, we've solved intelligence, that's another uh, big leap. But is there something surprising and beautiful to you about neural networks that where actually you sat back and said, I, I did not expect this? Oh, I think, I think their performance, their performance on ImageNet was shocking. So computer vision, those early days, it was just very like, wow, okay. That doesn't mean that they're solving everything in computer vision we need to solve or in vision for robots. What about Alpha Zero and self-play mechanisms and reinforcement learning? Isn't that? Yeah, that was all in, in Donald Mickey's 1961 paper. Um, <laughs> everything there was there, which introduced reinforcement learning. Um, no, but come on. So, no, you're talking about the actual techniques but isn't it surprising to you the level it's able to achieve with no human supervision of chess play? Like, I, so to me, there's a big, big difference maybe, between maybe, Deep Blue and... Maybe what that's saying is how overblown our view of ourselves is. You know, we... That chess is easy? <laughs> is that... <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, 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 uh, I came across this... 
1946 report that, um, and I'd seen this as a kid in one of those books that my mother had given me, actually. Um, 1946 report, which pitted uh, uh, someone with an abacus against an electronic calculator, mm -hmm. and he beat the electronic calculator. You know, so there, at that point, was, well, humans are still better than you right. know, machines at calculating. Are you surprised today that a machine can, you know, do a billion floating point operations a second and, you know, you're you're puzzling for for minutes to do one? So, you know. I, I am, I mean, I, I don't know, but I am certainly surprised. There's something uh, to me different about learning. So system that's able to learn. Learning, now see, see now you're getting into one of the d deadly sins. Mm -hmm. um, because of using terms uh, overly broadly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's so many different forms of learning. Yeah. And so many different forms. You know, I learned my way around the city. I learned to play chess. I learned Latin. Um, I learned to ride a bicycle. All of those are, you know, are very different capabilities. Yeah. And if someone, you know, has a, well, in you know, in the old days, people would write a paper about learning something. Now, the corporate... Uh, press office puts out a press release about how company X has has is leading the world because they have a system that can. Yeah, but here's the thing. Okay, so what is learning? When I refer to learning, is many things. But it's I, a suitcase I, word. In, it's a suitcase word, but loosely, there's a dumb system, and over time, it becomes smart. Well, it becomes less dumb at the thing that it's doing. Yeah, smart exactly. is a yes, smart is a loaded word. Yes, less less dumb at the thing it's it, doing. It gets better performance under some measure. Yeah, under some set of conditions, at that thing, and and most of these learning algorithms, um, uh, learning systems, fail when you change the conditions just a little bit in a way that humans don't. So, right, I was at DeepMind. Um, the AlphaGo had just come out. Mm -hmm. And I said, what would have happened if you'd given it a 21 by 21 board instead of a 19 by 19 board? They said, fail totally. But a human player would actually, you know, well, would actually be able to play that and game. And actually, funny enough, if you look at DeepMind's work uh, since then, uh, they are pre pre uh, they're presenting a lot of algorithms that would do uh the, that would do well at the at the bigger board. So they're slowly expanding this generalization. I mean, to me, there's a core element there. I, it is very surprising to me that even in a constrained game of chess or Go, that through self-play by a system playing itself, that can it can achieve superhuman level performance through learning alone. So like- Okay, so, so you know, you, you it's didn't- It's so you, fundamentally different than search of that. You, didn't, you didn't like it when I referred to Donald Mickey's 1961 paper. There, in yes. the second part of it, which yes. came a year later, they had self-play on an electronic computer yes. at tic-tac-toe, okay, yeah. it's not as, but it learned to play tic-tac-toe through self-play. No, no, that, that's not- And it what, learned to play optimally. What I'm saying is uh, I, Okay, I have a little bit of a bias, but I, I, I find ideas beautiful, but only when they actually realize the promise. That's another level of beauty. Like, for example, uh, what uh, uh, Bezos and Elon Musk are doing with rockets. We had rockets for a long time, but doing reusable cheap rockets, it's very impressive. In the same way, I, okay, 
Yeah, I would have not predicted. First of all, when I was uh, started and fell in love with AI, the game of Go was seen to be impossible to solve. Okay, so I thought maybe you know I maybe it'd be possible to maybe have big leaps in a Moore's law style of way in computation that will be able to solve it. But I would never have guessed that you could learn your way. However, I mean, in the narrow sense of learning, learn your way to, to, to beat the best people in the world at the game of Go without human supervision, not studying the game of experts. My, okay, so, so that's using, surprising. Using, using a different learning technique. Yes. Arthur Samuel in the early 60s, and he was the first person to use machine learning, yeah. got, had a program that could beat the world champion at checkers. Now, yes. so, and that at the time was considered amazing. Yeah. By the way, Arthur Samuel had some fantastic advantages. Yeah. Do you want to hear Arthur Samuel's well, yeah, advantages? Yeah, Two things. One, he was at uh, the 1956 um, AI conference. I knew Arthur later in life. Uh, he mm -hmm. was at Stanford when I was a graduate student there. He wore a tie and a jacket every day. Nice. The rest of us didn't. Um, he's delightful man, delightful man. Um, uh, it turns out Claude Shannon, in a 1950 Scientific American article uh, outlined the, uh, on chess playing, outlined the learning mechanism that Arthur Samuel used, um, and they had met in 1956. I assume there was some communication, but I don't know that for sure. But Arthur Samuel had been an, a vacuum tube engineer on um, getting reliability of vacuum tubes, and then had overseen um, the first transistorized computers at IBM. And in those days, before you shipped a computer, you ran it for a week to see to get early failures. So he had this whole farm of computers running random code mm -hmm. um, for hours and hours, um, a week for each computer. He had a whole bunch of them. So he ran his chess learning program uh, with self-play mm -hmm. on, on IBM's production line. He had more com computation available to him than anyone else in the world. And then he was able to produce a chess playing program, I mean, a, a checkers playing program that could beat the world champion. Mm -hmm. So that's amazing. The, the question is, what I mean, surprised, I don't just mean it's nice to have that accomplishment, is there is a stepping towards something that feels uh, more intelligent than before. Yeah, but and the question that's, is- That's in your view of the world. Okay, okay. well, let me then, it doesn't mean I'm wrong. No, <laughs> no, it doesn't. <laughs> so the question is, if we keep taking steps like that, how far that takes us? Are we going to build a better recommender systems? Are we going to build slightly well, better robots? Okay, or so, will we solve intelligence? So, you know, I'm putting my bet on, um, we're still missing a, a whole lot. A lot. Um, and, and why would I say that? Well, in these games, they're all, um, you know, 100% information games. But again, but each of these systems is a very uh, short description of the current state. Um, which is different from registering and perception in the world, okay. which gets back to Maravich's paradox. I'm definitely not saying that uh, uh, chess is somehow harder than uh, perception or uh, any kind of even, even any kind of robotics in the physical world. I, I definitely think is is way harder than the game of chess. So I'm, I was always much more impressed by 
like the, the workings of the human mind. It's incredible. The human mind is incredible. I've, I, I believe that from the very beginning. I wanted to be a psychiatrist for the longest time. I always thought that's way more incredible than the game of chess. I think the game of chess is a, it's, I love the Olympics. It's, it's just another example of us humans picking a task and then agreeing that a million humans will dedicate their whole life to that task. And that's the cool thing that the human mind is able to focus on one task and then compete against each other and achieve like weirdly incredible levels of performance. That's the aspect of chess that's super cool. Not that chess in itself uh, is really difficult. It, so, it's, it's like the Fermat's last theorem is not in itself to me that interesting. The fact that uh, thousands of people have been struggling to solve that particular problem is, is fascinating. So can I tell you my disease in this way? Sure. Uh, which actually is closer to what you're saying. Yeah. So as a child, you know, I was building various, I called them computers. They weren't general purpose computers. Ice cube tray. The ice cube tray was one, but I built other machines. And what I liked to build was machines that could beat adults at a game yeah. and they couldn't, the adults couldn't beat my machine. Yes. Yeah. So that was- So you were like, uh, <laughs> that's powerful. Like that's a, that's a way to rebel. Yeah. I, I by the way, um, did you, when was the first time you built something that outperformed you? Do you remember? Like, well, it, it, I knew how it worked. I was probably nine years old, and I built a thing that uh, it was a game where you, you you take turns in taking matches from a pile, and the, either the one who takes the last one or the one who doesn't take the last one wins. I forget. Yeah. And so it was pretty easy to build that out of wires and nails and little coils that were like plugging in the number and uh, a few light bulbs. Um, the one, the one I was prouder of, I was twelve when I I built a a, a thing out of old um, telephone switchboard switches that could uh, always uh, win at tic tac toe. Mm -hmm. That was a much harder circuit to <laughs> design, but yeah. again, it was just it was no active components. It was just three position switches, empty X zero or uh, O, and um, and nine of them, and and a light bulb on which which move it wanted next and then yeah. the human would go and move that. See, there's magic in that creation. I, I it tend, was, yeah, yeah. I tend to uh I tend to see magic in robots that like I I also think that intelligence is uh is a little bit overrated. I think we can have deep connections with robots very soon. And well we'll come back to connections with robots. Sure. But but I do want to say I I don't I, I think people, too many people make the mistake of seeing that magic and thinking, well, it will just continue, you know? But each each one of those is a hard-fought battle for the next step, the next step. Yes, but the open question here is, and this is why I'm playing devil's advocate, but I often do when I read your blog post in my mind, because I have like this eternal optimism, is it's not clear to me, so I don't do what obviously the journalists do or like give into the hype, but it's not obvious to me how many steps away we are from from a truly transformational understanding of what it means um, to build intelligent systems, like or how to build intelligent systems. I'm also aware of the whole history of artificial intelligence, which is where your deep grounding of this is. Is there has been an optimism for decades. <laughs> <laughs> and that optimism, just like reading old optimism is absurd because people were like, this is, they were saying things are trivial for decades, since the 60s. They were saying everything is true. Computer vision is trivial. But I think my mind is 
working crisply enough to where I, I mean we can dig into if if you want. I'm I'm really surprised by the things DeepMind has done. I don't think they're so, they're yet um, close to solving intelligence, but I'm not sure it's not ten to, uh, ten years away. What I'm referring to is interesting to see when the engineering um, it, it takes that idea to scale. And the and the idea works. And, and no, it fools people. Okay, honestly, Rodney, if it was you, me, and Demis inside a room, forget the press, forget all those things. Just as a scientist, as a roboticist, you don't. That wasn't surprising to you that at scale. So we're talking about very large now. We'll get okay. Let's pick one that's the most surprising to you. Okay, please don't yell at me. GPT three. <laughs> okay, hold on, hold on a second. Gonna, hold I was going to bring that up. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Alpha zero. Alpha go, alpha go zero, alpha zero, and then alpha fold one and two. So, aren't any do, do any of these kind of have this core of uh, not, not forget usefulness or application or so on, which you could argue for alpha fold? Like, as a scientist, was those surprising to you that it worked as well as it did? Okay, so if we're going to make the distinction between surprise and usefulness, and and and. I'll, I'll, I have to explain sure. this. I would say AlphaFold. And one of the problems at the moment with AlphaFold is, you know, it gets a lot of them right, which is a surprise to me because they're a really complex thing. Uh, but you don't know which ones it gets right, mm -hmm. um, which then is a, is a bit of a problem. Now they've come out with a recent... You mean the structure of the protein, it gets a lot of those right? Yeah, it's yeah. a, a surprising number of them right. Yeah. Uh, it's been a really hard problem. So that was a surprise how many it gets right. So far, the usefulness is limited because you don't know which ones are right or not. And now they've come out with a, um, a thing in the last few weeks, which is trying to get a useful tool out of it, and they may well do it. Um, in that sense, at least AlphaFold is different because your uh, AlphaFold 2 is different because now it's producing data sets that are actually... Uh, you know, potentially revolutionizing competitional biology. Like, they will actually help a lot of people. But you did say uh, potentially revolutionizing. Yeah. We don't know yet. But yeah, that's true. Yeah. But there, you know, but I, I, I got you. I mean, this is okay. So, you know what? This is going to be so fun. So, let's go right into it. Speaking of robots that operate in the real world, let's talk about self driving cars. Oh. <laughs> okay, because you do, you have built robotics companies. You, you're one of the greatest roboticists in history, and that's not in space of just in the space of ideas. We'll also probably talk about that, but in the actual building and execution of businesses that make robots that are useful for people and that actually work in the real world and make money. You also sometimes are critical of Mr. Elon Musk, or let's more specifically focus on this particular technology, which is autopilot inside Tesla's. What are your thoughts about Tesla autopilot or more generally vision-based machine learning approach to semi-autonomous driving? Uh, th these are robots that are being used in the real world by hundreds of thousands of people. And if you want to go there, I can go there, but that's not too much, which there is, let's say they're on par safety-wise as humans currently, meaning human alone versus human plus robot. Okay. So first, let me say, I really like the car I came here in here today. Which is? Um, a 
2021 um, model uh, Mercedes E450. Mm-hmm. I am impressed by the um, machine vision, sonar, other things. I'm impressed by what it can do. I'm really impressed um, with uh, many aspects of it, and and I'm. Um, it's able to stay in lane. Is it? Uh, oh, yeah, it does the it does the lane stuff. Um, it uh, uh, you know it, it's it's looking at, uh, on either side of me. It's telling me about nearby cars or blind spots and so on. Yeah, when I when I when I when I'm going in close to something in the park, I get this beautiful, gorgeous top down view of the world. I am impressed up the wazoo of how you know registered and metrical that oh, is. Oh, so it's like multiple cameras and it's all right yeah, together uh, 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 to produce a 360 view kind 360 of 360 view, uh, you know, synthesized right. as though it's above the car. And yeah. it is unbelievable. I, I got this car in January. It's the longest I've ever owned a car without digging it. Um, so it's better than me. It, it, wow. okay. Or me and it together uh, are better. So I'm not saying technology's um, are bad or not useful. But here's my point. Yes. It's just, it's just a replay of the same movie. Mm-hmm. Okay. So maybe you've seen me ask this question before. But um, when, um, when, when did the first car go over 55 miles an hour for over, um, over 10 miles? on a public freeway with other traffic around, driving completely autonomously. When did that happen? Was it CMU in the 80s or something? It was a long time ago. It was actually in 1987 in Munich. Munich, yeah. yeah. uh, At the Bundeswehr. Uh, um, um, So they they had it running in 1987. When do you think, and Elon has said he's going to do this, when do you think we'll have the first car drive coast to coast in the US, hands off the wheel, hands off the wheel, Feet off the pedals, coast to coast. As far as I know, a few people have claimed to do it. 1995. That was Carnegie Mellon. I didn't know, but oh, that was the code. Yeah. The, uh, they so, didn't claim, did they claim 100%? They not, not 100%. Yeah, yeah. Not 100%. But, but and the, then my, there's a few marketing people who have claimed 100% yeah. since then. But my point is that, you know, I, 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 what I see happening again is someone sees a demo and they overgeneralize and say we must be almost there. Yes. Well, we've been we've been working on it for thirty five exactly. years. So that's demos. But <laughs> this is going to take us back to the same conversation with Alpha Zero. Are you not okay? I'll just say what I am because I thought okay when I first uh, started interacting with the uh, with the mobile eye implementation of Tesla Autopilot. I've driven a lot of car. You know, I've been in the Google self driving car since the beginning. Um. I thought there was no way before I sat and used Mobileye, I thought there just knowing computer vision, I thought there's no way it could work as well as it was working. So my model of the limits of computer vision uh, was uh, was way more limited than the actual implementation of Mobileye. I was so that's one example. I was really surprised. I was like, wow, that was that was incredible. The second surprise came when Tesla threw away Mobileye and started from scratch. Uh, I thought there's no way they can catch up to Mobileye. I thought what Mobileye was doing was kind of incredible, like the amount of work and the annotation. Yeah, well, Mobileye was started by Amnon Shrasher and and used a lot of traditional, 
you know, hard fought computer vision techniques. But they also did a lot of good sort of uh, like non-research stuff, like actual like oh. uh, just good, like what yeah, you yeah. do to make a successful product, right? At yeah. scale, all that kind yeah. of stuff. And so I was very surprised when they from scratch were able to catch up to that. Uh, that's very impressive. And I've talked to a lot of engineers that was involved. This is, that was impressive. Uh, and the recent progress, especially under, um, well, with the involvement of Andre Kapathy, the, what they were, what they're doing with uh, the data engine, which is converting into the driving task into these multiple t tasks, and then doing this edge case discovery when they're pulling back, like the level of engineering made me rethink what's possible. I don't, I still, you know, um, I don't know to that intensity, but I always thought it was very difficult to solve autonomous driving with all the sensors, with all the computation. I just thought it was a very difficult problem. But I've, I've been continuously surprised how much you can engineer. First of all, the data acquisition problem, because I thought, you know, just because I worked with a lot of car companies, and they're, they're so a little, a little bit old school, to where I didn't think they could do this at scale, like AWS style data collection. So when Tesla was able to do that, uh, I started to think, okay, so what are the limits of this? Now, I still believe that um, a driver like sensing and the interaction with the driver and like studying the human factor psychology problem is essential. It's, it's always going to be there. Uh, it's always going to be there, even with fully autonomous driving. But I've been surprised what is the limit, especially of vision-based alone, how far that can take us. Um, so that's my levels of surprise. Now, <laughs> okay, uh, can, can you explain uh, in the same way you said like alpha zero, that's a homework problem that's scaled large in his chest, like who cares, go with it. Here's actual people using an actual car and driving, many of them drive more than half their miles using the system. Right. So, and uh, yeah, he, they're doing well with, with pure vision. For uh, pure vision, yeah. And, you know, they... <laughs> and now no radar, which is... I suspect that can't go all the way. And one reason is without without new cameras that have a dynamic range closer to the human eye, because human eye has incredible dynamic range. And we make use of that dynamic range yes. in, in its uh, 11 orders of magnitude or some crazy number like that the cameras don't have that which is why you see the the the, the bad cases where the sun on a white thing and it blinds it uh, in a way it wouldn't blind a person i think there's a bunch of things to think about before you say this is so good it's just going to work <laughs> okay um um and I'll come at it from multiple angles. And I know you've got a lot of time. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Let's, let's, let's I, I have this. thought about these things. Uh, yeah. I, I know. You've been writing a lot of great blog posts about it for a while before Tesla <laughs> had autopilot, right? So you've been thinking about autonomous driving for a while from yeah. every angle. So so a few things. You know, in the US, um, I think that the, the death rate from um, motor vehicle accidents is about 35,000 a year, um, which is an outrageous number, not outrageous compared to COVID deaths, but you know, there is no rationality. Um, and that's part of the thing. People have said, engineers say to me, well, if we cut down the number of deaths by 10% by having autonomous driving, that's going to be great. Everyone will love it. 
And my prediction is that if autonomous vehicles kill more than 10 people a year, they'll be screaming and hollering, even though 35,000 people a year have been killed by human drivers. It's not rational. It's a different set of expectations, and that will probably continue. Um, so there's that aspect of it. The other aspect of it is that um, when we introduce new technology, we often change the rules of the game. So when we introduced cars first, uh, you know, into our daily lives, we completely rebuilt our cities and we changed all the laws. Yeah. Jaywalking was not an offense. That was pushed by the car companies so that people would stay off the road so there wouldn't be deaths from yeah. pedestrians getting hit. We completely changed the structure of our cities and had these foul-smelling things, you know, everywhere around us. Um, and, you know, and now you see pushback in cities like Barcelona is really trying to exclude cars, uh, et cetera. Um, so I think that to get to self-driving, we will um, large adoption. It's not going to be just take the current situation take out the driver and put the same car doing the same stuff because the end case is too many. Um, here's an interesting question. How many um, fully autonomous um, um, train systems do we have in the U.S.? I mean, do you count them as fully autonomous? I don't know because they're usually as a driver, but they're kind of autonomous, right? No, well, let's get rid of the driver. Okay. I don't know. It's either 15 or 16. Most most of them are in airports. Okay. Um, there's a few that go about five, two that go about five kilometers out of airports. Yeah. Um, uh, when, do, when, when is the first fully autonomous train system for mass transit expected to operate fully autonomously with no driver uh, in, in a U.S. city? I'm it's expected to operate in 2017 in Honolulu, oh, wow. it's delayed, but they will get there. But, by the way, it was originally going to be autonomous uh, here in the Bay Area. I mean, they're all very close to fully autonomous, right? Yeah, but, but, but yeah. The, the getting the close is the thing. And I have, I have, I've often gone on a fully autonomous train in Japan, um, one that goes uh, out to that fake island in the middle of Tokyo Bay. I forget the name of the... Uh, and and what, do you, what do you see when you look at that? What do you see... When you go to a fully autonomous train in a in a in a oh, um, an airport, it's not like regular trains. There's at every station there's a double set of doors, um, so that there's a door of the train and there's a door off the the um, off the the platform. Yeah, um, and, and it's really visible in this Japanese one because it goes out in in amongst buildings the whole track is built so that people can't climb onto it yeah so there's engineering that then makes the system safe and makes them acceptable i think we'll see similar sorts of things happen in the u.s what surprised me i thought wrongly um that we would have special purpose lanes on 101 uh in the bay area the the leftmost lane so that it would be normal for Teslas or other cars to move into that lane and then say, okay, now it's autonomous. 
mm-hmm. and have that dedicated lane. I was expecting movement to that. You know, five years ago, I was expecting we'd have a lot more movement towards that. We haven't. Mm-hmm. And it may be because Tesla's been overpromising by saying this, you know, calling their system fully self-driving. Um, I think they may have been gotten there quicker by collaborating to change the infrastructure. Yes. You know, this is one of the problems with long-haul trucking um, being autonomous. I think it makes sense on freeways um, at night for the trucks to go autonomously. Um, but then there's the, how do you get onto and off of the freeway? What sort of infrastructure do you need for that? Um, do you need to have the human in there to do that? Or can you get rid of the human? So I think there's ways to get there, but it's an infrastructure argument because the long tail of cases is very long and the acceptance of it will not be at the same level as human drivers. So I'm, I'm with you still, and I was with you for a long time, but I am surprised how, how well, how many edge cases of machine learning and vision-based methods can cover. This, this is what I'm trying to get, get at is, um, I think there's something fundamentally different with uh, vision-based methods and Tesla Autopilot and any company that's trying to do the same. Okay, well, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to argue with you because, you know, I, I, we're speculating. Yes. But, I, I, but, you know, my gut feeling tells me it, it's going to be, um, things, will, things will speed up when there is engineering of the environment. Because that's oh, yeah, what yeah. happened with every other technology. Yeah. I, I'm a, I'm a bit. I don't know about you, but I'm a bit cynical that uh, infrastructure, which relies on on government to help out in these cases, um, if you just look at infrastructure in all domains, it's just uh, government always drags behind on infrastructure. There's like there's so many. Just well, in this country. In the, sure, sorry, yes. In the, in this country, and, and of course, there's many, many countries that are actually much worse on infrastructure. Oh, yes, yeah. many of them much worse, and there's <laughs> some that, you know, like high-speed rail, the like, other countries have done much better. I guess uh, my question is like, which is at the core of what I was trying to think through here and ask you is like, how hard is the driving problem as it currently stands. So you mentioned like, we don't want to just take the human out and duplicate whatever the human was doing. But if we were to try to do that, what, how hard is that problem? Because I used to think is way harder. Like I I used to think it's uh, with vision alone, it it, it would be three decades, four decades. Okay, so I I don't know the answer to this thing I'm about to pose, but I do notice that on Highway 280 here in the Bay Area, Mm -hmm. which largely has concrete surface rather than blacktop surface, the white lines that are painted there now have black boundaries around them. Mm. And my lane drift system in my car would not work without those black boundaries. Interesting. So I don't know whether they've started doing it to help the lane drift, whether it is an instance of infrastructure following the technology but it but it my car would not perform as well without that change in the way they paint the line unfortunately really good lane keeping is not as valuable like it's orders of magnitude more valuable to have a fully autonomous system like yeah but but for me 
lane keeping is really helpful because I'm lousy you, at it. <laughs> but you wouldn't pay 10 times. Like, um, the problem is there's not financial, like it doesn't make sense to, to, to uh, revamp the infrastructure to make lane keeping easier. It does make sense to revamp the infrastructure. Oh, I see. If you have a large fleet of autonomous vehicles, now you change what it means to own cars. You change the nature of transportation. I mean, but that that for that you need uh, autonomous vehicles. Let me ask you about Waymo. Then uh, I've gotten a, a bunch of chances to to ride in in a Waymo um, self driving car, and they're I don't know if you'd call them self driving, but well, you know, I mean, I, I I rode in one before that were called Waymo. Yeah, still at X. So there's currently, which was a big leap. Another surprising leap I didn't think it would happen, which is they have no driver currently. Yeah, in, in Chandler. In Chandler, Arizona. And I think they're thinking of doing that in Austin as well. But they're like expanding. Yeah. But although, even although, that, although, you know, and I, I do an annual uh, checkup on this. So as of late last year, they were aiming for hundreds of rides a week, yeah. not thousands. And um, there is some, no one in the car, but there's certainly uh, um, safety uh, people in the loop. And it's not clear how many, you know, what the ratio of cars to safety people is. I it wasn't uh, obviously they're not 100% transparent about this. No, but none of them are 100% transparent. Well, this they're is very the problem. Untransparent. But I, at least the way they're, I, I don't want to make definitively, but they're saying there's no teleoperation. Um, e so like. There, I mean, okay, yeah. and, what, and 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 that sort of fits with with um, YouTube videos I've seen of people being trapped in the car, yeah, um, by a red cone on the on the street, and they do they do have rescue vehicles that come, yeah, and a, then a person gets in and drives it, yeah. But isn't it incredible to you? It was to me to get in a car with no driver and watch the steering wheel turn. Like for somebody who has been studying at least the, certainly the human side of autonomous vehicles for many years, and you've been doing it for way longer, like it was incredible to me that this was actually could happen. I don't care if that scale is a hundred cars. This is not a demo. This is not. This is me as a, as a, yeah. a regular. No, the, human. the yeah. argument I have is yeah. that people make interpolations from that interpolations that are, you know You're it's not. here, it's done, um, you know it's just you know we've solved it. No, we haven't yet. And and that's my argument. Okay, you know? so I'd like to go to you. Uh, you keep a list of predictions yep, on, okay. on your amazing blog post. It'd be fun to go through them. But before then, let me ask you about this. You have a you have a harshness to you sometimes in your criticisms of what, what? is perceived <laughs> as hype. <laughs> uh, and so like, because people extrapolate, like you said, and they, they kind of buy into the hype and then they, they kind of start to think that um, uh, the, the technology is way better than it is. But let me ask you maybe a difficult question. Sure. Do you think if you look at history of progress, don't you think to achieve the quote impossible, you have to believe that oh, it's possible? Absolutely, yeah. Look, look his, 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 his two great runs, great, unbelievable. 1903, first human um, power, human, uh, you know, heavier than air flight. Yeah. 1969, 
We land on the moon. That's 66 yeah. years. I'm 66 years old. Yeah. In my lifetime, that span of my lifetime, we yeah. went from barely, get, you know, flying, I don't know what it was, 50 feet yeah. or the length of the first flight or something, to landing on the moon. Unbelievable. Yeah. Fantastic. But that requires, by the way, one of the Wright brothers, both of them, but one of them didn't believe it's even possible like a year before. Right, so like not just possible soon, but like yeah. ever. So, 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 you know, how important is it to believe and be optimistic? Is what I guess. Oh yeah, asking. it is important. It's when it goes crazy. When, 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 I, you know, you said what? What, what was the word you used for my bad harshness? Harshness. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I just get so frustrated. Yes. When, when people make these leaps. And tell me that I'm that I don't understand. I, right. I, I, you know, yeah. There's just from iRobot, which I was co-founder of. Yeah. I don't know the exact numbers now because I haven't. It's ten years since I stepped off the board, but I believe it's well over thirty million robots cleaning houses yeah. from that one company. And now there's lots of other companies. Yes. Um, was that a crazy idea that we had to believe? Uh, in 2002 when we released it yeah that was we we had we had to you know believe that it could be See, done okay, let me ask you about this so irobot one of the greatest robotics companies ever in terms of creating a robot that actually works in the real world probably the greatest robotics company ever you were the co-founder of it um if if the rodney brooks of today talked to the rodney of back then what would you tell him? Because I have a sense that, would you pat him on the back and say, what you're doing is going to fail, but go at it anyway? That's what I'm referring to with the harshness. You've accomplished an incredible thing there. One of the several things we'll talk about. What, what, like that's what I'm trying to get at that line. No, it's, it's when, it, my harshness is reserved for people who are not doing it who claim it's just, well, this shows that it's just gonna happen. But here, here's the thing. This shows. But you and, have that harshness for Elon too. And no. Or no, it's a different harshness. No, it's it's a, a different um, argument with Elon. You know, I, I, I think SpaceX is an amazing company. On the other hand, you know, I in one of my blog posts, I said, what's easy and what's hard? I said, yes. SpaceX, uh, vertical landing rockets, it had been done before. Um, grid fins had been done since the 60s. Every Soyuz has them. Um, um, reusable space, um, DCX reused those rockets that landed vertically. Um, th there's a whole insurance industry in place for rocket launches. There were all sorts of infrastructure. That was doable. It took a great entrepreneur, a great personal expense he almost drove himself you know bankrupt doing it um a great belief to do it whereas hyperloop uh there's a whole bunch more stuff that's never been thought about and never been demonstrated so my estimation is hyperloop is a long long lot yes. further off but and uh, and if uh, i've got a criticism of 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 elon it's that he doesn't make distinctions between when the technologies coming along and ready, and then he'll go off and, and See, I, mouth uh, off about other things, which the, then people the, go and compete about and try and do, 
and so yeah this is where i um i i understand what you're saying i tend to draw a different distinction i i have uh, a similar kind of harshness towards people who are not telling the truth who are basically fabricating stuff to make money or to well he believes what he says i just think he's I, to wrong me that's sometimes. a very important difference yeah i'm not i'm not <laughs> <laughs> because i think uh in order to fly in order to get to the moon, you have to believe um, even when uh, most people tell you you're wrong and most likely you're wrong, but sometimes you're right. I mean, that, that's the same thing I have with Tesla Autopilot. I, I think that's an interesting one. I was, especially when I was you know, um, at MIT and just the entire human factors in the robotics community were very negative towards Elon. It was very interesting for me to observe colleagues at MIT I wasn't sure what to make of that. That was very upsetting to me because I understood where that where that's coming from. And I, I agreed with them and I kind of almost felt the same thing in the beginning until I kind of opened my eyes and, and realized there's a lot of interesting ideas here. There might be overhype, you know, if, if you focus yourself on the idea that um, you shouldn't call a system full self-driving when it's obviously not autonomous, fully autonomous, you're going to miss the magic oh, of progress. Yeah, you are going to miss the magic, but at the same time, there are people who buy it, literally pay money for it, yeah, and take those words as given. So it's and that's. Uh, but I haven't. So that I take words as given is one thing. I haven't actually seen people that use autopilot that believe that the behavior is really important, like the actual action. So like this is I, to push back. Uh, and the very thing that you're frustrated about, which is like journalists and general people uh, buying all the hype and going out in the same way, I think there's a lot of hype about the, the negatives of this too, that people are buying without using. People use the way, this is what, this was, this opened my eyes actually. The way people use a product is very different than the way they talk about it. This is true with robotics, with everything. Everybody has dreams of, how a particular product might be used or so on. There's, and then when it meets reality, there's a lot of fear of robotics, for example, that robots are somehow dangerous and all those kinds of things. But when you actually have robots in your life, whether it's in the factory or in the home, making your life better, that's going to be, that's way different. Your perceptions of it are gonna be way different. And so my just tension was, was like, here's an innovator, um, uh, like, uh, 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 what is it? So, sorry, Super Cruise from Cadillac was super interesting too. That's a really interesting system. There's an, we should like be excited by those innovations. Okay, so let me, can I yeah. tell you something that's really annoyed me recently? Mm -hmm. It's really annoyed me that the press and friends of mine on Facebook are going, these billionaires and their space games, you know, why are they doing that? Yeah, that's that been really, very frustrating. really pisses me off, yeah. I, I, I must say. I, I, I applaud that. Yeah. I applaud it. Yeah. It's the taking and not necessarily the people who are doing the things yeah. but the, you know that I, that I keep having to push back against yeah. on realistic expectations of when these things can become real yeah i this was interesting on because there's been a particular focus for me is autonomous driving elon's prediction of when certain milestones will be hit um, <laughs> there's several things to be said there that I, I always, I thought about, because whenever you said them, it was obvious that's not going to me as a person that kind of not inside the system, it was obvious it's unlikely to hit those. Uh, there's two 
comments I want to make. One, he legitimately believes it. And two, much more importantly, I think that having ambitious deadlines drives people to do the best work of their life, even when the odds of those deadlines are very um, low. To, to a point, and I'm not, to a so point. I'm not talking about Elon yes. here, I'm just saying. So there's yeah, a line there, right? You have to have a line because you overextend and it's, it's demoralizing. Yeah. But I will say that there's an additional thing here that those words also um, drive the stock market. Yeah. And, you know, we have, because of the way that rich people in the past have manipulated the rubes through investment, we have, um, um, we have developed laws about what, you know, what you're allowed to say and yeah, over promise. And, the, you know, there's an area here which is... I, I, uh, I tend to be... Uh, maybe I'm naive, but I, I tend to believe uh, that um, like engineers, innovators, people like that, they're not, they're my, they don't think like that, like manipulating the price of the stock price, but it's possible that I'm, uh, I'm certain it's possible that I'm wrong. I, it's a, it's a very cynical view of the world because I don't, I think most people that run companies and build like, especially original founders, they um yeah i'm not saying that's the intent i'm saying it's a uh, eventually it's kind of you uh, yeah you 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 fall into that kind of a behavior pattern i don't know i i tend to <laughs> i wasn't saying i wasn't saying it's falling into that intent it's just a you also have to protect yeah, yeah, investors yeah. in this in this market yeah okay so you have well, first of all you have an amazing blog that people should check out but you also have this uh, in that blog a set of predictions such a cool idea. I don't know how long ago you started, like three, four years ago. It was um, January 1st, 2018. 18, yeah. And I made these predictions and I said that every January 1st, I was going to check back on how my predictions yeah. had That's such a great thought experiment. For 32 years. Oh, so you said 32 years. I said 32 years because that'll be January 1st, 2050. Yeah. I'll be, I will just turn 95. Mm -hmm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> nice. And, so, you know, so. Uh, and so people know that your predictions, at least for now, are in the space of artificial intelligence. Yeah, I didn't so, say I was going to make new predictions. I was just going to measure this set of predictions that I made because yeah. I was sort of, I, I was sort of annoyed that everyone could make predictions they didn't come true and everyone forgot. So yeah, I, said, forgot. Well, I should hold myself to a higher standard. Yeah, but also just putting years and like date ranges on things. It's a good thought exercise. Yeah. Like, and like reasoning your thoughts out. And so the topics are uh, artificial intelligence, autonomous vehicles, and space. Yep. Um, I was wondering if it, we could just go through some that stand out, maybe from memory, I can just mention to you some, let's talk about self-driving cars, like some predictions that you're particularly proud of or are, are particularly interesting uh, from flying cars to uh, the, the other element here is like how widespread the location where the deployment of the autonomous vehicles is. Uh, and there's also just a few fun ones. Is there something that jumps to mind that you remember from the predictions? Well, I, I think I did put in there that there would be a um, dedicated self-driving lane on 101 mm -hmm. by some year. And I think I was over-optimistic on that one. Yeah, actually, yeah, I actually do remember that. But you, uh, I think you were mentioning like difficulties at different cities. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, 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 so Cambridge, Massachusetts, I think was an example. Yeah, of, uh, like in Cambridgeport. You know, yeah. I, I lived in Cambridgeport for a number of years, and you know the roads are narrow, and getting getting anywhere as a human driver is incredibly frustrating when you start to put and and people drive the wrong way on one way streets. There, it's just. Uh, so your prediction was driverless taxi services operating on all streets in Cambridgeport, Massachusetts in uh 2035 yeah and that may have been too optimistic you think so uh, you know I, i've gotten a little more pessimistic since i made these internally on some of these things so what uh can you put a year to a major milestone of deployment of a taxi service in um in a few major cities like something where you feel like yeah, so so autonomous so, vehicles so, are so, here. So, so let's let's take um, the grid streets of San Francisco, mm -hmm. north of Market. Okay. Okay. Um, relatively benign um, uh, environment. The streets are wide. Um, the major problem is uh, delivery trucks stopping everywhere. Um, <laughs> yeah, which has made things more complicated. Um, a taxi system there with um, somewhat designated pickup and drop-offs, unlike with Uber and Lyft, where you can sort of get to any place and the drivers will figure out how to get in there. Um, we're still a few years away. I, you know, I live in that area, so I see, you know, the self-driving car companies' cars, multiple multiple ones every day out there at cruise um uh, uh zooks less often uh waymo all the time um different and different ones come and go but and there's always a driver there's always a driver at the moment although i have noticed that um so sometimes the driver does not have the authority to take over without talking to the home office because they will sit there waiting for a long time, yeah. and clearly something's going on where the home office is making a decision. Um, That's fascinating. So they're, you know, and and so you can really? see whether they've got their hands on the wheel or not, and and it's the incident resolution time that tells you, gives you some clues. So what year do you think, what's your intuition, what date range are you currently thinking San Francisco would be autonomous uh, taxi service from any point A to any point B without a driver. Are you, are you still, are you, are you thinking uh, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now? Certainly not 10 years from now. It's gonna be longer. If you're allowed to go south of market, way longer. Um, and, and Unless there's re-engineering of, yes. of roads. Um, By the way, what's the biggest challenge? You mentioned a few. Is it uh, the, is it the delivery trucks? Is it the edge cases, the computer perception? Uh, well, computer well here's, here's a case that I saw outside my house uh, a few weeks ago, um, about 8 p.m. on a Friday night. It was getting dark. It was before the solstice. Um, um, it was a um, cruise vehicle come down the hill, uh, turned right, um, and stopped dead, covering the crosswalk. Why did it wow. stop dead? Because there was a human just two feet from it. Mm -hmm. Now, I just glanced. I knew what was happening. The human 
was uh, was a woman was at the door of her car trying to unlock it with one of those things that yeah. you know when you don't have a key yes that car thought oh she could jump out in front of me any second yeah as a human i could tell no she's not going to jump out she's busy trying to unlock her she's lost her keys she's trying to get in the car and it it stayed there for until i got bored um yeah <laughs> <laughs> and so the the human driver in there did not take over but here's the kicker to me a guy comes down the hill with a stroller i assume there's a baby in there and now the crosswalk's blocked by this cruise vehicle mm -hmm. what's he gonna do cleverly i think he decided not to go in front of the car mm -hmm. <laughs> he went but he had to go behind it. He had to get off the crosswalk, out into the intersection wow. to push his baby around this car, which was stopped there, and no human driver would have stopped there for that length of time. Um, they would have got out and out of the way. And that's another one of my pet peeves, that safety is being compromised for individuals who didn't sign up for having this happen in their neighborhood. Yeah, but... Now, you can say that's an edge case, but... Yeah, well, I'm in general not a fan which uh, of uh, anecdotal evidence for stuff. Like, this is one of my biggest problems okay. with the discussion of autonomous vehicles in, in general. People that criticize them or support them are using edge cases. Okay. Uh, uh, so, are so, using anecdotal so, so, evidence. So, so let me, let me, but I got you. You, you, know, you know, your question is when is it going to happen in San Francisco? I say not soon, but not it's going to be one of the. But where, where it is going to happen is in. Um, uh, limited domains, uh, campuses of various sorts, gated communities, where the other drivers are, 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 are not arbitrary people. Um, they're people who know about these things. They, they, you know, it's been warned about them. And at velocities where it's always safe to stop dead. Yeah. Um, you can't do that on the freeway. That I think we're going to start to see. Um, and they may not be shaped like, you know, current cars. They may be, you know, things like, you know, May Mobility has those things and various companies have these. Yeah, I wonder if that's a compelling experience. To me, it's always important. It's not just about automation. It's about creating a product that like, that makes your, it's not just cheaper, but makes your, this fun to ride. Uh, one of the most, one of the least fun things is for a car that stops and like waits. There's something deeply frustrating for us humans for yeah. the rest of the world to take advantage of us as we wait. But um, think about, uh, you know, not you as the customer, but someone who's in their 80s in an, uh, you know, in a retirement village yeah. whose kids have said, you're not driving anymore. Yeah. <laughs> and this gives you the freedom to go to the market. Well, That's a hugely beneficial thing, but it's a very uh, few orders of magnitude less impact on the world. It's not, it's just a few people in, in a small community using cars as opposed to the entirety of the world. Uh, <laughs> I like that uh, the first time that a car equipped with some version of a solution to the trolley problem is, uh, what's NIML stand for? Like, not in my life. Not in my life. I define my lifetime as, as up 2050. 2050. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I, and I, ask, I ask you, when, when have you had to decide which person shall I kill? Um, no, you put the brakes on and you brake as yeah, hard as you can. You, you know, I mean, you're uh, not making that decision. <laughs> it is, uh, you know, I do think autonomous vehicles or semi-autonomous vehicles do need to solve the whole pedestrian problem. 
that has elements of the trolley problem within it, but it's not. Yeah, well, so here's, and I talk about it in one of my, the articles or blog posts that I wrote. Here's, here's and, and people have told me, I, one of my coworkers has told me he does this. He he tortures autonomously driven vehicles and pedestrians will, yeah. will torture them. Now, you know, once they realize that, you know, putting one foot off the curb makes the car think that they might walk into the road, kids, teenagers will be doing that all the time. They will. I, by the way, one of my, and it's a whole nother discussion because my main issue with robotics is HRI, human robot interaction. I believe that robots that interact with humans will have to uh, push back. Like they can't just be bullied because that creates a very uncompelling experience for the humans. Yeah, well, you know, Waymo, before it was called Waymo, discovered that, you know, they had to do that at, at four-way intersections they had to they had to nudge forward to give yeah. the cue that they were going to go because yeah. otherwise the other drivers would just beat them all the time so you co-founded irobot as we mentioned uh one of the most successful robotics companies ever what are you most proud of with that company and uh the approach you uh took to robotics well like, there's something i'm quite proud of there which may be a surprise but um I was still on the board when this happened. It was March 2011, um, and we sent robots to Japan, and they were used to uh, shut, help shut down the Fukushima Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant, yeah. um, which was everything was. I've been there since. I was there in 2014. To the and the robots, some of the robots were still there. I was I was proud that we were able to do that. Why were we able to do that? And, and, you know, people have said, well, you know, Japan is so good at robotics. It was because we had had about 6,500 robots uh, deployed in Iraq and Afghanistan, teleopt, but with intelligence, um, dealing with roadside bombs. Uh, so we had, uh, I think it was at that time, nine years of in-field experience with the robots in harsh conditions. Whereas the Japanese robots, which were, you know, getting, you know, this goes back to what annoys me so much, getting all the hype. Look at that. Yeah. Look at that Honda robot. It can walk. Wow, <laughs> the future's here. Um, couldn't do a thing uh, yeah. because they weren't deployed. But we had deployed in really harsh conditions for a long time. And so we're able to, to um, do something very positive in a very bad situation. What about just the simple, and for people who don't know, one of the things that iRobot has created is the Roomba uh, vacuum cleaner. What about the simple robot that that is the Roomba, quote unquote, simple, that's deployed in tens of millions of in tens of millions of homes? What do you think about that? <laughs> well, I, I make the joke that I started out life as a pure mathematician and turned into a vacuum cleaner salesman. So <laughs> if you're going to be an entrepreneur, be ready for exact, be ready to I mean, do anything. Um, but I was, you know, uh, <laughs> there was a there was a wacky uh, lawsuit that I got posed for uh, not too many years ago. And I was the only one who had emailed from the 1990s. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and no one in the company had it. So I went and went through my email and, and it reminded me of you know the the joy of what we were doing <laughs> and and what what was i doing what was i doing at the time we were building um building 
the Roomba, one of the things was we had this incre- you know incredibly tight budget because we wanted to, to put it on the shelves at $200. There was another home cleaning robot at the time. It was the uh, uh, Electrolux uh, Trilobite, which sold for 2,000 euros. And to us, that was not going to be a consumer product. Mm-hmm. So we had reason to believe that $200 was a was a thing that people would buy at. That was our aim. But that meant we had, you know, that's that's on the shelf making profit. Mm-hmm. Uh, that means the cost of goods has to be minimal. So I find all these emails of me going, uh, you know, I'd be in um, Taipei for a MIT meeting. And I'd stay a few extra days. I'd go down to Shinshu and talk to these little tiny companies, lots of little tiny companies outside of uh, TSMC, Taiwan Semiconductor, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation, which let all these little companies be fabulous. They didn't have to have their own fab so they could innovate. And they were, um, they were building, their innovations were to build stripped down 6802s. 6802 was what was in an Apple One. Get rid of half the silicon and still have it be viable. And I'd, I'd previously got some of those for some earlier failed products of, of iRobot. And then uh, that was um, in Hong Kong, going to all these um, uh, companies that built, you know, they weren't gaming in the current sense. There were these handheld games that you would play mm-hmm. um, or, or birthday cards. Because we had about a 50 cent budget for computation. So I'm trekking from place to place, looking at their chips, yeah. looking at what they'd removed. Yeah. Oh, the interrupt, the interrupt handling is too weak for a, a general purpose. So I was going deep technical wow. detail. And then I found this one from a company called Winbond, which had, and I'd forgotten it had this much RAM. It had 512 bytes of RAM and it was in our budget. And it had all the capabilities we needed. Yeah. So, <laughs> and you were excited. <laughs> yeah. And I, I was reading all these emails. Colin, I found this. <laughs> so, did you think? Did you ever think that you guys could be so successful? Like, eventually, this company would be so successful. Did you? Could you possibly have imagined? Um, no, we never did think that. We had had fourteen failed business models up till two thousand and two, and then we had two winners the same year. Um, uh, no, and then you know, we. I remember the board, because um, by this time we had some um, venture capital in. The board went along with us building um, some robots for, you know, aiming at the Christmas two thousand two mm-hmm. market, and we went three times over what they authorized and built seventy thousand of them and sold them all. Uh, in that first, because we released on September 18th and uh, they were all sold by Christmas. So it was, uh, so we were gutsy, but. (laughs) But but yeah, you didn't think this will take over the world. Well, this is, uh, so a lot of amazing robotics companies have gone under over the past few decades. Why do you think it's so damn hard to uh, run a successful well, there's a, there's robotics a, company? There's a few things. Um, one is expectations of capabilities by the founders that are off base. The you founders, know. not the consumer, the founders. Yeah, expectations of what, what can be delivered. Sure. Mispricing and 
what a customer thinks is a valid price is not rational necessarily. Yeah. And expectations of the customers. Um, and just the sheer hardness of getting people to adopt a new technology. And I've suffered from all three of mm. these. Uh, you know, I've had uh, more failures and successes yeah. um, in terms of companies. I've suffered from all three. Um, so. Do you think um, one day there will be a robotics company? And by robotics company, I mean where your primary source of income is ro from robots. That will be a trillion plus dollar company. And if so, what comp what would that company do? I can't, you know, because I'm still starting robot companies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not making any such predictions in my own mind. I'm not yeah. thinking about a trillion dollar company. And by the way, I don't think, you know, in the 90s, anyone was thinking that Apple would ever be a trillion dollar company. So yeah. these are these are very hard to, to, to predict. But so, sorry to interrupt. But don't you, because I kind of have a vision in a, in a small way, in a, a big vision in a small way, that I see that there would be robots in the home at scale, like Roomba, but more. And that's a trillion dollar. Right. And I, and I think there's a, there's a real market pull for them because of the um, um, demographic inversion. You know, who's, who's going to do all the stuff for the older people? Mm -hmm. um, there's too many, I, you know. I'm I'm leading here. <laughs> there's there's going to be too many of us, <laughs> and yeah. um, um, but we don't have capable enough robots to to make that economic argument at this point. Do I expect that that will happen? Yes, I expect it will happen. But I got to tell you, we introduced the Roomba in 2002, and I stayed another nine years. We were always trying to find what the next home robot would be, and still today. The primary product of twenty years late, almost twenty years later, nineteen years later, the primary product is still the Roomba. So, iRobot hasn't found the next one. Do you think it's possible for one person in the garage to build it versus, like, Google launching Google self-driving car that turns into Waymo? Do you think it's like this is almost like what it takes to build a successful robotics company? Do you think it's possible to go from the ground up, or is it just too much capital investment? Yeah. So. It's very hard to get there um, without a lot of capital. And we're starting to see, you know, uh, fair chunks of capital uh, for some robotics companies. Um, you know, Series Bs, was, I just saw one yesterday for $80 million, I think it was, for Covariant. Um, mm -hmm. But it can take real money to, to, to get into these things, and you may fail along the way. I've certainly failed at, at Rethink Robotics, um, and we lost $150 million in capital there. So, okay, so Rethink Robotics is, a, is, is another amazing robotics company you co-founded. So what was the vision there? What was the dream? And what, what are you most proud of with Rethink Robotics? I'm most proud of the fact that we got um, robots out of the cage in factories, that was safe, absolutely safe for people and robots to be next to each other. So and these are robotic arms. Robotic arms. They're able to pick up stuff and interact with humans. Yeah, and that the humans could retask them uh, without writing code. Right. 
And, and now that's sort of become an expectation for a lot of other little companies and big companies are advertising they're doing. That's both an interface problem and also a safety problem. Yeah, yeah. So I'm most proud of that. I completely, I let myself be talked out of what I wanted to do. And, you know, you've always got, you know, I can't replay the tape. <laughs> you know, I can't replay it. Maybe, maybe, I, you know, if I'd been stronger on, and I remember the day, I remember the exact meeting. Um, Can you take me through that meeting? Yeah. Um, so I'd said that I'd set as a target for the company that we were going to build $3,000 robots with force feedback um, that was safe for people to be around. Wow. That was my goal. And we built, uh, so we started in 2008, and we had prototypes built of plastic, uh, plastic gearboxes, mm -hmm. and at a $3,000, you know, uh, lifetime, or $3,000, I was saying, we're going to go after not the people who already have robot arms in factories, the people who would never have a robot arm. We're going to go after a different market. So we don't have to meet their expectations. Mm -hmm. Um and and so we're going to build it out of plastic. It doesn't have to have a thirty-five thousand hour lifetime. It's going to be so cheap that it's opex, not capex. Mm -hmm. um, and so we had we had a prototype that worked reasonably well, but the control engineers were complaining about these plastic gearboxes with a beautiful little planetary gearbox um, that. Uh, we could use something called series elastic actuators. We embedded them in there. We could measure forces. We knew when we hit something, et cetera. The control engineers were saying, yeah, but this, this, this is torque ripple because you know, these plastic gears, they're not great gears. And there's this ripple and trying to do force control around this ripple is so hard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and... I'm not going to name names, but I remember one of the mechanical engineers saying, we'll just build a metal gearbox with spur gears and it'll take six weeks. We'll be done. Problem solved. Two years later, we got the gear, the, the spur gearbox working. Yeah. Um, we, we, we cost reduced it every possible way we could. Um, yeah. But now the price went up to, and then the CEO at the time said, well, we have to have two arms, not one arm. So our first robot product, Baxter, now costs $25,000. And the only people who were going to look at that were people who had arms in factories because that was somewhat cheaper for two arms than mm -hmm. arms in factories. But they were used to um, 0.1 millimeter reproduce, uh, re reproducibility of motion and certain velocities. And we, I kept thinking, but that's not what we're giving you. You don't need position repeatability. You use force control like a human does. Mm -hmm. No, well, no, but we want we want that repeatability. We mm -hmm. want that repeatability. That's, all the other robots have that repeatability. Why don't you have that repeatability? So can, can, can you clarify force controls? You can grab the arm and you can move yeah, it. Yeah, well, you can move it around. But, but suppose you, um, can you see that? Yes. Suppose you want to. Yes. Suppose this this thing is a you know precise thing that's got to fit here in, in this right angle. Yeah. Um, under position control, you send you 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 have fixtured where this is. You know where this is precisely, mm -hmm. and you just move it. Open, yeah. you know, and it goes there. If force control, you would do something like slide it over here till we feel that. 
and slide yeah. in there. Right. And that's how a human gets preci yeah. precision. Yeah. They use force feedback. Yes. And get the things to mate rather than just go straight to it. Yeah. Couldn't convince couldn't convince our customers who were in factories and were used to thinking about things a certain way. And they wanted it, wanted it, wanted it. So then we said, okay, we're going to build an arm that gives you that. So now we ended up building a $35,000 robot with one arm with, um, um, oh, what are they called? Uh, um, a certain sort of gearbox made by a company whose name I can't remember right now, but it's the name of the gearbox. Um, and um, but it's it's got torque ripple in it, mm -hmm. so now there was an extra two years of solving the problem of doing the force with the torque ripple. So we had to do the <laughs> the thing we had avoided, and yeah. for the plastic gearboxes, we ended up having to do. The robot was now overpriced, and um, they and that was your intuition from the very beginning, kind of that this is not. This is, you're opening a door to, to solve a lot of problems that are, you're, you're eventually going to have to solve this problem anyway. Yeah, and also I was aiming at a low price to go into a different market. Low price. That, that didn't have robots. $3,000 would be amazing. Yeah, I think we could have done it for five. Um, but, you know, you said, talked about setting the goal a little too far for the yeah, engineers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so so why, why would you say that company um, not failed but went under? We had buyers, and um, there's this thing called the Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S., CFIUS, and um, that had previously been invoked twice um, around where the government could stop uh, foreign money coming into a U.S. company based on um, defense requirements. Mm -hmm. We went through due diligence multiple times. We were going to get acquired. Um, but every consortium had Chinese money in it. And all the bankers would say at the last minute, you know, this isn't going to get past CFIUS. And the investors would go away. And then we had two buyers. When we were about to run out of money, two buyers. And one used heavy-handed legal stuff with the other one. Sorry. Said they were going to take it and pay more dropped out when we were out of cash and then bought the assets at one thirtieth of the price they had offered a week before. It was a tough week. <laughs> Do you, um, does it hurt to think about like an amazing company that didn't, you know, like, like iRobot didn't find a way? Yeah, it was tough. Um, I said I was never going to start another company. I was pleased that Everyone liked what we did so much that the teams, the, t the team was hired by um, three companies within a week. Everyone had a job in one of these three companies. Some stayed in their same desks because the com another company came in and rented the space. So, well, so I felt good about people not being out on the street. But. So Baxter has a screen with a face. What? Uh... That's a revolutionary idea for a uh, robot manipulation, like for a robotic arm. Uh, well, uh, the screen, how much opposition did you get? Well, first, the screen was also used during um, codeless programming, where you taught by demonstration that showed you what its understanding of the task was. So it had two roles. Um, some customers hated it, and so we made it so that when the robot was running, it could be showing graphs of what was 
happening and not show the eyes. Other com other people, and some of them surprised me who they were, were saying, well, this one doesn't look as human as the old one. We like the human looking. Yeah. So there was a mixed bag there. Hmm. But do you think that's, uh, I don't know, I, I'm kind of disappointed whenever I talk to, um, to roboticists, like the best robotics people in the world, they seem to not want to do the eyes type of thing. Like they seem to see it as a machine as opposed to a machine that can also have a human connection. I'm not sure what to do with that. It seems like a lost opportunity. I think the trillion dollar company will have to do the human connection very well, no matter what it does. Yeah, I agree. Can I ask you a ridiculous question? Sure. <laughs> I might give a ridiculous answer. <laughs> uh, do you think, uh, well, may maybe by way of asking the question, let me first uh, mention that you're kind of critical of the idea of the Turing test as a test of intelligence. Um, let me first ask this question. Do you think we'll be able to build an AI system that humans fall in love with and it falls in love with the human? Like romantic love. Well, we've had that with humans falling in love with cars, even back in the 50s. It's a different love, right? Well, I, I yeah. think I think yeah. there's a lifelong partnership where you uh, can communicate and grow like, I think we're a long way from that. I think we're a long, long way. I think um, uh, Blade Runner was, you know, had the time scale totally wrong. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but do you, so uh, to, to me, honestly, the most difficult part is the thing that you said with the Marvex paradox is to create a human form that interacts and perceives the world. But if we just look at a voice, like the movie Her, or just like uh, an Alexa type voice, I tend to think we're not that far away. Well, for some for some people, maybe not. But I, I, I you know, I, I, you know, as humans, as we think about the future, we always try to. And this is the premise of most science fiction movies: you've got the world just as it is today, and you change one thing. Right. right, but that's not how, and, and it's, it's the same Good with a self-driving car. Good you point. change one thing, yeah. no, you, ch you everything changes. Yes, everything grows together. So surprisingly, I, it might be surprising to you, it might not. I think the best movie about this stuff was Bicentennial Man, mm. um, and what was happening there? Um, it was schmaltzy, and you know, but yeah. what was happening there? As the robot was trying to become more human. The humans were adopting the technology of the robot and changing their bodies. Yeah. So there was a convergence happening in, That's a, in a sense. I mean, so we will not be the same. You know, we're already talking about uh, genetically modifying our babies. You know, there's a there's you know, more and more stuff happening around that. We will we will want to modify ourselves even more for all sorts of of, of things. Um, we put uh, all sorts of technology in our bodies. Um, to improve it, you know, I've got I've got things in my ears so that I can sort of hear you. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. So we're always modifying our bodies. So, so you know, I think it's hard to imagine exactly what it will be like yeah. in the future. But on the Turing test side, do you think? Uh, so forget about love for a second. Let, let, let's talk about just uh, like the, the Alexa Prize. Actually, I was invited to be a what is the interviewer for the Alexa Prize or whatever um, that's in two days. Their idea is uh, 
success looks like a person wanting to talk to an AI system for a prolonged period of time, like 20 minutes. How far away are we? And why is it difficult to build an AI system with which you'd want to have a, uh, a beer and talk for an hour or two hours? Like, not for to check the weather or to check music, but just like to to, uh, to talk as friends. Yeah, well, you know, we saw we saw um, Weizenbaum uh, back in the '60s with his program Eliza, yeah. um, being shocked at how much people would talk to Eliza. And I I remember, you know, in the '70s typing you know stuff to yeah. Eliza to see what it would come back with. Um, you know, I think right now, and you know, this is a thing that. Um, uh, you, Amazon's been trying to improve with Alexa. There is no continuity of, 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 of topic. There's not. You can't refer to what we talked about yesterday. Mm -hmm. um, it's not the same as talking to a person where there seems to be an ongoing existence, right. which changes. Um, yeah. We share moments together, and they last in our memory together. Yeah, and there's none of that, and there's no um, sort of intention of these systems that they have any goal in life even if it's to be happy you know they don't they don't e even have a semblance of that now i'm not saying this can't be done i'm just saying i think this is why we don't feel that way about them or that that's a, 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 a sort of a minimal requirement if you want the sort of interaction you're talking about it's a minimal requirement whether it's going to be sufficient i don't know we haven't seen it yet we don't know what it feels like but. I, I tend to be I tend to think it's uh it's not uh as difficult as solving intelligence for example and uh, I think it's achievable in the near term but on the Turing test why don't you think the Turing test is a good test of intelligence oh I, I because it, you know I, again the Turing, Turing if you read the paper Turing wasn't saying this is a good test. He was using it as a rhetorical device to argue um, that if you can't tell the difference between a, a computer and a person, you must say that the computer's thinking because you can't tell the difference, you know, then it's thinking. You can't you can't say something different. Um, what it has become as this sort of weird game of fooling people. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> back at the uh, uh, AI lab in the late 80s, we had this thing that still goes on called the AI Olympics. And one of the events we had one year was um, the original imitation game, as Turing talked about, because he starts by saying, uh, can you tell whether it's a man or a woman? Mm -hmm. So we did that at the at the lab. We had, you know, you'd go and type and the thing would come back and you had to tell whether it was a man or a woman. Um, and um, the... <laughs> The uh, uh, one of the one of the one of the uh, uh, one man came up with a question that he could ask, which was always a dead giveaway mm -hmm. of whether the other person was really a man or a woman. You know mm -hmm. what he would ask them: Did you have um, green plastic toy soldiers as a kid? Yeah. What do you do with them? And a woman, <laughs> a woman trying to be a man would say, oh, I lined them up. We had wars, we had battles. Yeah. And the man just being a man would say, I stumped on them. I burned them. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that's what, that's what the Turing test, the Turing test with computers has yeah, become. What's the trick question? What's yeah. the, that's why I say that's it. right. It's that's sort right. of that's right. devolved into this.
with us. <laughs> Nevertheless, conversation not formulated as a test is a pretty, is a fascinatingly challenging dance. Uh, that's, that's a really hard problem. To me, co conversation when non poses a test is a is a more intuitive illustration how far away we are from solving intelligence than like computer vision. It's hard. Computer vision is is harder for me to pull apart. But with language, with conversation, you could see. Oh, because like, language is so human. We don't. It's so human. Yeah. We can we can so we can so clearly uh, see it. Shit, you mentioned something that I was gonna go on off on. Okay, um, I mean I have to ask you because you <laughs> you were the head of CSAIL AI lab for a long time. You're, I don't know. Uh, to me, when I came to MIT, you're like one of the greats at MIT. So w what was that time like? Like what? And and plus you uh, with your uh, I don't know friends with, but you knew Minsky and all the all the folks there, all the legendary AI uh, people of, of which you're one. So what was that time like? Like what, what are memories that um, stand out to you from that time? From your time at MIT, from the AI lab, from the dreams that the AI lab represented to the actual like okay. revolutionary well, work? Well, let, let me tell you first the disappointment in myself. You know, as I've been researching this book, um, and so many of the players, uh, you know, were active in the 50s and 60s. I knew many of them yeah. when they were older, and I didn't ask them all the questions now I wish I had asked. Uh, I'd sit with them at, at our Thursday lunches, which we had a faculty lunch, and and I didn't ask them so many questions that now I wish I had. Can I ask you that question? Because you wrote that. You, you wrote that you were fortunate to know and rub shoulders with many of the greats. Uh, those who founded AI, robotics, and computer science, and the World Wide Web. And you wrote that your big regret nowadays is that often I have questions for those who have passed on. Yeah. And I didn't think to ask them any of these questions. Right. Uh, even as I saw them and said hello to them on a daily basis. So maybe also another question I want to ask, if you could talk to them today, what question would you ask? What questions would you ask? I, well, Rick Leiter. I, I, I would ask him, you know, he had the vision for humans and, and computers working together, and he really founded that at DARPA, and he gave the money to MIT, which started Project Mac in 1963. Um, and I, I would have talked to him about what, what the successes were, what the failures were, what he saw as progress, et cetera. Um, I, I would have asked him more, more questions about that, because now I could use it in my book, you know, but, <laughs> but I think it's lost. It's lost forever. A lot yeah, of the motivations yeah. are, are lost. Um, uh, I, I, I should have asked Marvin why he, he and Seymour Papert came down so hard on neural networks in 1968 in their book Perceptrons, because Marvin's PhD thesis was on neural networks. Yeah, and that, I, how do you make sense of that? That he book was, destroyed the field. For He probably... His, do you think he knew the, the effect that book would have? You, all the theorems are negative theorems. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. That's just the way of, that's, that's the way of life. Yeah. But still, it's kind of tragic that he was both the proponent and the destroyer of neural networks. Yeah. Um, is there other memories stand out from the, the robotics and the AI work at MIT? 
Well, yeah, but you got to be more specific. <laughs> well, I mean, like it's such a magical place. I mean, it, to me, it's a little bit also heartbreaking that, you know, with Google and, and Facebook, like DeepMind and so on, so much of the talent, you know, doesn't stay necessarily for prolonged periods of time in these in in these universities. Oh yeah, I mean, the, 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 some of the companies are more guilty than others of paying fabulous salaries to some of the highest, you know, yeah. producers. And then just, you never hear from them again. They're not allowed to give public talks. They're, they're sort of locked away. And it's sort of like collecting, collecting, you know, Hollywood stars or something. Mm. And they're not allowed to make movies anymore. I own them. Um, yeah, that's uh, tragic. Because, I mean, the, there's an openness to the university setting where you do research. To, yeah. uh, both in the space know, of ideas and space like publication, all those kinds of things. Yeah, you know, and and you know, there's the publication and all that, and and often, you know, although these places say they publish, yeah, there's pressure. And um, but I think, for instance, um, you know, net uh, net, I think Google buying those eight or nine robotics company was bad for the field because it locked those people away. They didn't have to make the company succeed anymore. Locked them away for years, and then sort of all fritted away. Yeah. So, um, do you have hope for MIT? For, could, for MIT? Yeah. Why shouldn't I? Well, I could be harsh and say that I'm not sure. I would say MIT is leading the world in AI, or even Stanford or Berkeley. I would say. I would say uh, DeepMind, Google AI, Facebook yes. AI. See, I, I would take a slightly different approach, or a different answer. Uh, I'll, leave, I'll come back to Facebook in a minute. Mm -hmm. But I think those other places are following a dream of one of the founders, uh, and I'm not sure that it's well-founded, the dream, and I'm not sure that it's going to have the impact that he believes it is. Um, You're talking about Facebook and Google and so on. I'm talking about Google. Google. But the thing is, those research labs aren't, there's the big dream. And I'm, I'm, I'm usually a fan of, no matter what the dream is, a big dream is a unifier. Because what happens is you have a lot of bright minds working together uh, on a dream. What results is a lot of like adjacent ideas. I mean, this yeah, is how yeah. so much progress is made. Yeah, I'm, 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 so I'm not saying they're actually leading. I'm not, I'm not saying that the universities are leading. Yeah, but I don't think those companies are leading sure. in general because they're, sure. you know, the, and we, we saw this incredible spike in, you know, attendees at Neurips. And as I said in my January first review this year for 2020. 2020 will not be remembered as a watershed year for machine learning or AI. Mm -hmm. You know, there was nothing surprising happened anywhere. Unlike when deep learning hit ImageNet, that was a that was a a shake. And there's a lot more people writing papers, but the papers are fundamentally boring, yeah, and uninteresting. Incremental work. Is there particular memories you have with Minsky or, or somebody else at MIT that stand out? Uh, funny stories. I mean, unfortunately, he's another one that's passed away. 
you've known some of the biggest minds in AI. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know they they did amazing things, and some sometimes they were grumpy. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was uh, he was interesting because he was very grumpy, but that that was his. Uh, I remember him saying in an interview that the key to success or being to keep being productive is to hate everything you've ever done in the past to hate well, everything. maybe that, maybe that explains the perceptron book <laughs> there it was he he told you exactly what <laughs> but he meaning like just like i mean maybe that's the way to not treat yourself too seriously just uh always be moving forward uh that was his idea i mean th that crankiness I mean, there's a <laughs> yeah. So, uh, this is so, so, so let me let me let me tell you, uh, you know, what really, um, you know, the joy memories are about having access to technology before anyone else had seen it. Mm -hmm. So, so you know, I I got to Stanford in 1977, and we had, um, you know, we had terminals that could show live video on them, um, digital digital sound system. We had um, a, a, a Xerox graphics printer. We could print. Um, uh, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like a typewriter ball hitting in characters. It could print arbitrary things only in, you know, one bit, you know, black or white. But you could arbitrary pictures. This was science fiction sort of stuff. Um, right. um, at at MIT, the uh, the list machines, which you know, they were the first personal computers and you know they were, cost a hundred thousand dollars each and i could you know i got there early enough in the day i got one for the day couldn't couldn't stand up <laughs> had to keep working yeah <laughs> um um so they're having that like direct glimpse into the future yeah and and you know i've had email every day since 1977 um and uh you know the <laughs> the, the host field was only eight bits, you know, yeah. there weren't that many places, but we, I could send email to other people at, at a few places. So that was, that was pretty exciting to be in that world so different from what the rest of the world knew. Um, and, uh, uh, let me ask you, I'll probably edit this out, but just in case you have a story, uh, I'm hanging out with Don Knuth, uh, for a while tomorrow. Did, did you ever get a chance to such a different world than yours? He's a very kind of theoretical computer science, the puzzle of uh, of uh, computer science and mathematics, and you're so much about the magic of robotics, like the practice of it. Did you, you mentioned him earlier for like, not you know about computation? Did your worlds cross? They did in a, you know, I I know him now. We talk, yes. you know, but let me tell you my my Donald Knuth story. <laughs> okay, so, um, you know, besides you know analysis of algorithms, he's well known for writing tech, yep. which is in LaTeX, which is the academic publishing system. So he did that at the AI lab, mm -hmm. and he would do it, he would work overnight at the AI lab. And one one day, the one night, the, uh, the mainframe computer went down, and um, a, a guy named Robert Poor was there, he only did his PhD at the Media Lab at MIT, and he was a you know engineer, uh, and so I he and I you know tracked down what were the problem was. It was one of this big refrigerator size or washing machine size disk drives had mm -hmm. failed, and that was what brought the whole system down. So we got panels pulled off, and we're pulling you know circuit cards out, and Donald Knuth, who's a really tall guy, 
walks in and he's looking down and says, when will it be fixed? You know, because he wanted to get back to writing <laughs> yeah. his tax system. Well, Great. And so we, we, we figured out, you know, it was a, a particular chip, 7400 series chip, which was socketed. Huh. We popped it out. We put a replacement in, put it back in, smoke comes out because we put it in backwards because we were so nervous that the yeah. old Knuth was yeah. standing over us. <laughs> anyway, we eventually got it fixed and yeah. got the, the mainframe running again. So that was your little, when was that again? That, well, that must have been before October 79 because we moved out of that building then. So sometime, probably 78 sometime or early 79. Yeah, those all those figures are just fascinating. All the people have passed passed through MIT is really fascinating. Is there? A, let me ask you to put on your big wise man hat. Is there advice that you can give to young people today, whether in high school or college, who are thinking about their career, who are thinking about life, how how to live a, a life they're proud of, a successful life? Yeah, so so many people ask me for advice and have asked for, and I give I talk to a lot of people all the time. And there is no one way. Um, you know, there's a lot of pressure to produce papers um, that will be acceptable and be published. Uh, maybe I was maybe I come from an age where I would I could be a rebel against that. And, and still succeed. Maybe it's harder today. But I think it's important not to get too caught up with what everyone else is doing. And if you, if well, it depends on what, what you want of life. If you want to um, have real impact, you have to be ready to fail <laughs> a lot of times. So you have to make a lot of unsafe decisions. And the only way to make that work is to make keep doing it for a long time, and then one of them will be work out, and so that 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 will make something successful or not. Or, not. or, that's, or yeah, that's or the you may, point. or you just may, you know, end up, you know, not having a, you know, having a lousy career. I mean, that's, yeah. it's certainly possible. But taking the risk is the thing. Yeah. So, but it, 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 but there's no way to to um, make all safe decisions and actually really contribute. Do you uh, think about your death, about your mortality? I got to say, when COVID hit, I did. Because we did, you know, in the early days, we didn't know how bad it was going to be. And I, that, that made me work on my book harder for a while. But then I'd started this company, and now I'm doing full-time, more than full-time at the company, so the book's on hold. But I do want to finish this book. Um, when you think about it, are you afraid of it? I'm afraid of dribbling, you know, yeah. thing, um, of losing it. The details of, okay. Yeah. Yeah. But the fact that the ride ends? I've known that for a long time. Um, so it's. Yeah, but there's knowing and knowing. It's such a. Um, yeah. And it, it, it really it, sucks. It feels, it feels a lot closer. <laughs> so my in in my my blog with my predictions my sort of pushback against that was I'm gonna, I said I'm going to review these every year for 32 years <laughs> and that mm -hmm. puts me into my 
mid nineties. So you know, it's my I put the whole every every time you write the blog post, you're getting closer and closer to yeah, your own that, prediction. That, that's that's of true your, of your death. Yeah. yeah. What what do you hope your legacy is? You're one of the greatest roboticist well, AI researchers of yeah. all time. Um, what I hope is that I actually finish writing this book and that there is a, there's one person who reads it and sees something about changing the way they're thinking and that leads to the next big. And then there'll be on a podcast a hundred years from now saying, I once read that book <laughs> and that changed everything. Uh, what do you think is the meaning of life? This whole thing, the existence, the, 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 all the hurried things we do on this planet. What do you think is the meaning of it all? Ah, well, you know, I think we're all really bad at it. <laughs> life or finding meaning or both. Yeah. We get caught up in, in, in the, it's easy to get easier to do the stuff that's immediate and mm -hmm. not do the stuff that's not immediate. Um, so the big picture we're bad. Yeah. At. Yeah. Do you have a sense of what that big picture is? Like why you ever look up to the stars and ask why the hell are we here? You know, my, my, uh, my, my uh, atheism tells me it's just random, but you know, I want to understand the, the way random in the, in the, it's what I talk about in this book, how order comes from disorder. Yeah. Um, but it kind of sprung up like most of the whole thing is random, but this little pocket of complexity they would call earth that like, why the hell does that happen? And, and what we don't know is how common that po those pockets of complexity are or how often, um, cause they may not last forever. Uh, Which is uh, more exciting slash sad to you if we're alone or if there's infinite number of oh I, I, I think I think it's impossible for me to believe that we're alone um that was just be too horrible too cruel <laughs> it could be like the sad thing it could be like a graveyard of intelligent civilizations oh everywhere yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, that may be the most likely outcome and for us too yeah exactly yeah and all of this will be forgotten yeah including all the robots you build everything forgotten well on average <laughs> everyone has been forgotten in history yeah right yeah <laughs> most people are not remembered beyond a generation or two um i mean yeah well not just on average basically very close to 100 percent of people who have ever lived are forgotten yeah i mean in no, a long arc of i don't know anyone alive who remembers my great grandparents because we didn't meet them <laughs> Still, this fun, this uh, this uh, life is pretty fun somehow. Yeah, <laughs> even the immense absurdity and, and uh, at times meaninglessness of it all, it's pretty fun. And one of the, for me, one of the most fun things is robots. And I've looked up to your work. I've looked up to you for a long time. Well, that's very kind, Rod. It it's it's an honor that uh, you would spend your valuable time with me today talking. It was an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thanks for thanks for talking with me. I've enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to this conversation with Rodney Brooks. To support this podcast, please check out our sponsors in the description. And now, let me leave you with the three laws of robotics from Isaac Asimov. 
One, a robot may not injure a human being or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm. Two, a robot must obey the orders given to it by human beings except when such orders would conflict with the first law. And three, a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or the second laws. Thank you for listening. I hope to see you next time.